Hi, this is Steve. Almost 40 years ago, on December 7, 1979, I lined up outside the Cinema One in Larkspur, California, with my entire family to see Star Trek, the motion picture. I can remember that the line was long, looping out into the parking lot near the freeway, and that we waited for what seemed to my 11-year-old brain like forever. I remember sitting in the theater, barely able to contain myself as I counted seconds on my black and white Timex. This was, without a doubt, the most important movie premiere since I watched Christopher Reeve as Superman in the same theater one year earlier. And just like Superman, something I loved, something I thought of as my own personal guilty pleasure was about to be put on the big screen. And that meant that there were other people out there who thought Star Trek was just as important as I did, that it mattered, and that in some strange way, that meant I mattered. Because the truth is, Star Trek is important to me. It took me decades to really understand just how important. I mean, I've never felt the need to dress up as a Klingon or Ferengi. I haven't read every novel, and there are plenty of folks who can beat me at Star Trek trivia. But in in terms of the way I look at the world, in terms of core values, Star Trek runs deep, very deep. And the reality is, Star Trek the motion picture might be flawed as a film, but it is important. In fact, the more I think about this movie and its place in history, the more important it becomes. Now, we couldn't possibly discuss a Star Trek movie without one of our favorite guests, Star Trek expert and fellow cinephile Scott Mance, who made his first appearance on our show to discuss the sequel, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And that's one of my favorite episodes. So if you haven't seen the motion picture, you should probably go on a mission to explore our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Star Trek The Motion Picture along with every other film we've ever reviewed. Then come back on Friday to hear us discuss the movie with our very, very special guest, Scott Mance. Bones is a thing out there. Why is any object we don't understand always called a thing? Head it this way. I need you. Damn it, Bones. I need you. <laughs> And welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, writer, producer, and host over at Collider, co-host of the Top Ten Show, co-host of the Geek Buddies, proud host of the Deep Cut on the Collider Conversations feed on Collider, and of course, proud co-host of the cinephiles, and I'm sorry about my voice. I was uh, going to say, as a voiceover artist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? I've been fighting off um, an illness all week. Uh, I've been kind of touch and go here at Collider, going home early a couple of times to recover. But last night, I think I coughed out the last of it. <laughs> Good to know. And it ripped apart my fucking throat. So uh, I apologize. So this is what I'm going to sound like for this conversation. But I was goddamn if I was going to miss this episode. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, and you've already heard a voice of one of our favorite guests, Scott yes. Mance. Mance. Welcome back. Oh, thank to the you Cinema so much Files. for having me. And I got to tell you, I'm so, first of all, I'm so relieved and grateful that you did not already do this movie. Yeah. We wouldn't but do that without you. Not without that, you. That means a lot. Yeah. <laughs> because we, we, you know, I've had, oh my gosh, so you'll, you will love this. I was at the Arclight uh, a couple weeks ago for a screening of. Uh, of Charlie's Angels. Oh yeah. And as I was walking out, and I by by walking out I mean like I walked out of the movie. Oh, oh. oh. Scott does awful. that. 
We yes. walked out of King Arthur. We walked out of King Arthur together. That <laughs> yes. movie was terrible. Oh, my God. It's like, like why waste your time? Yeah. That movie was a really good airplane movie. Okay, I have airplane a theory movie. about, like, just, <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm on an airplane. I will watch a terrible action film, and wow. it, it, it does perfectly. Okay. So I was walking out of the theater, and I'm walking, you know, down the foyer, down to the parking area. So somebody, I'm walking one way, the guy's walking towards me, like, smiles, like, as if to say hello. And then he goes, Scott Mance. And I went... Yeah. And I says, oh, I was just listening to you on and I'm waiting, waiting. Maybe it's Collider yeah. or, you know, like, where does he know me from? And he says, the cinephiles. Oh, and nice. He says, your comment about Gaff being the Blade Runner <laughs> blew my mind. And I'm like, like, but this was just an audio podcast. Yeah. And he stopped me. I was like, of all the things that get started, it made me really, really proud because nowhere, I mean, nowhere have I had the opportunity to do such a deep dive into the movies I love yeah. than with you two fine gentlemen on the cinephiles. And I'm not just saying that because I'm sitting here with you. I mean it. This is really what this is all about. Really, really, truly loving a movie where you dissect it down to what's Love it to sense. death. That's what we love do. Love it to death. We're yeah, going to love yeah. it to death. Thank you, Scotty. Um, well, we always love having you on the show. Yeah. And and uh, as, as everyone who listens to the show know, I always try to do my research. I always try to look. And, of course, to do my research on this film, I went to re-listen to Star Trek The 50-Year Mission. And who do I get to hear <laughs> speaking to me That's is true. Scott Mance. Wait, so, but you were yeah. the voices for that. I do some of the voices yeah. as well uh, on it as well. That so, is yeah, so wild. That was so So cool. I have both of you in my ears. And of course, <laughs> here we are, yeah. you know, doing this. So, so and, and to be honest, like, while I have a certain level of Star Trek geek knowledge, I bow to superior knowledge in the room. Listen, fellas, I got to tell you that I just love Star Trek so damn much. Yeah. I really do. But my love for Star Trek is not absolute. You know, the the new show, uh, Star Trek Discovery, yeah. it was a real – I really had a hard time with that first season. Uh, second season was a little more like it. It was better. It was a lot better yes. because parts of it felt like a throwback to yes. the original show. Yeah. And I'm very, very I – mean, who isn't excited about Picard coming up? Yeah. Oh, my God. But none of these shows, Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, the J.J. movies, none of that would have happened had it not been for the very, very first Star Trek movie, yeah. which is a film that launched everything else that followed it. But people are just so, like, all over the map with their feelings about Star Trek The Motion Picture. Mm. And Star Trek The Motion Picture is a movie that I've always loved, but not for the reasons that you probably think. Mm. And it's also a film where the love that I've had for it has changed over the years wow. with perspective. But nowhere – Am I going to be able to really do a deep dive into that film <laughs> right here on the cinephiles with you brothers? Yeah. It's awesome. Well, well, and there's one other thing I want to talk about before we get into the film because just a few days ago, we lost one of the great Star oh, Trek mm. creators, which is uh, DC Fontana passed away just a few days ago. And she is so integral. You know, we, 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 we spend so much time thinking of things with the great person theory, yeah. the great you know, what is it, the bird of the galaxy? Great bird of the galaxy, the great Gene, Gene Roddenberry, that he somehow, all of Star Trek comes fully formed out of his brain, and that is not the case. Not the case. Dorothy Fontana's loss at the age of 80 due to a quick illness, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was really hit me hard. 
because when you think of the original Star Trek series that ran from 66 to 69, there are basically four people, not including the actors themselves, who are, were crucial to the, the uh, evolution of that show into what we loved and, again, launched everything else that followed. Yeah. Obviously, there's Gene Roddenberry who created the show. There's Robert H. Justman who was like the right-hand uh, production person who eventually became associate producer. There's the late, great Gene Kuhn yeah. mm. who produced Star Trek from the middle of the first season to the middle of the second season. Not a whole lot of time, but without <laughs> Gene Kuhn, uh, you know, he created the Klingons. He created the United Federation of Planets and he wrote some of the finest episodes like – And he brought in a sense of humor and all – you know, humor. Was, yeah. Absolutely. He defined – the, the three points of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Yeah. And, and he also wrote some of the finest episodes like Devil in the Dark yeah. and, uh, and Metamorphosis. But the fourth person who was just as crucial as any one of these other men was the woman that is Dorothy Fontana. Yeah. She wrote some of the series' most beloved episodes – and by that, I mean uh, This Side of Paradise mm -hmm. and, uh, and one also of my favorites, yeah. Journey to Babel. Which introduced right. Spock's parents, and she also wrote the uh, the Enterprise incident. So many other episodes. Tomorrow is yesterday, but you know what? What she her her impact on that show and the production of that show cannot be overstated. Yeah, like she was so crucial to all of the heart of that show, just like Gene Kuhn was. Gene Kuhn brought more of the humor, but what? What, what Fontana did to develop the character of Spock and Spock's family and the mythology of uh, Vulcan uh, was tantamount to, to Lucas creating Star Wars. Mm. Like she was such an integral voice and such an integral part. Even the, the animated series episode that she wrote called Yesteryear, yeah. which was – it, it could have been one of the great episodes of Star Trek if it had been in an actual Star Trek episode. Damn right. That was a fourth season episode of Star Trek. Seriously, it was. But it, you know, her loss. You know, when I was like, you know, on social media reading everything, yeah. and uh, I, it really hit me just because you know my my love for the original show just runs as, as far back as I can remember. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it, it's and, and the thing too is that she was there. She was there for when we started Next Generation, and she also. Here's how I feel about it. I feel angry at Gene Roddenberry for the way he treated some of these other creators and didn't, you know, like, you know, there's some people that want to take all the credit for themselves. And he was one of them. And he's definitely one of them. And like when, when I was in theater school, I had a directing teacher mm -hmm. and there was a – basically I had choreographed a fight scene and because I love doing fight choreography and I had choreographed it with this young guy who had done some sword stuff. And I said to my directing teacher, I'm really proud of this fight scene. Do I – do I share the credit with this guy or should I take the credit myself? Because I felt I'd really choreographed most of it. and Or should I give him the credit? And he said, you're the writer-director. You get all the credit. If the, if the play is good, you get all the credit. Yeah. If the play is bad, you get all the blame. The more credit you can give away, the better. Mm -hmm. And I went, wow. And I, and I gave this young guy the credit for the fight choreography. And that guy today is a professional fight choreographer. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. And this was the first thing he ever did. But, you know, in defense of Roddenberry, you know, because he has gotten a lot of yeah. criticism over the years for, for you know, and I, and I said, you know, for, you know, like I said right before you said that about how he took so much credit in defense of him. 
keep in mind, nothing like Star Trek had ever been done Agreed. before right. on national television. Every episode they were doing, especially during the first season, was they were on new ground. Yeah. So when you have your first two pilots, one of them that didn't air, the other was where no man has gone before. So you have all these other writers coming in uh, who were only – Going by what they saw in Where No Man Has Gone Before, right. which was not a was not a regular episode of the series. But the only person who has the entire series in his head is Roddenberry. Yeah. So all these people are going to go off and write their screenplays and they're going to come back. Here you go, Gene. And Gene's going to go, yeah, wait, you know, Kirk wouldn't say that. Spock wouldn't say that. That's not what the Enterprise would do. So, of course, he's going to give the first half – of that first season where the show was really finding its footing, he has to keep the common theme going from episode to episode. In right. order to do that, he has to rewrite people to make it sound like one cohesive voice and he did do that. So so that, that's that's the understanding I have and, and the appreciation I have for why he did what he did. But clearly there are other producers, creative producers like Gene Kuhn and DC Fontana, Dorothy Fontana, who, who made a massive, massive impact and Gene – had Fontana as as his production assistant right, right. and then gave her the chance to to take a crack right. at Charlie X and right. there we are. Um, Which I love Charlie X. I love Charlie X. Yeah. There's some creepy moments oh, in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I have a feeling – I'm going to ask you the question I asked at the beginning of every show and I have a feeling that your answer and my answer are probably just about exactly the same. Okay. Which is how did you first come to this film? Oh, well, I saw it in theaters. I saw it in theaters on opening weekend. I lived. I grew up in Northeast Philadelphia, so my dad took me to see Star Trek: The Motion Picture at the Leo Mall, which was uh, uh, at the corner of uh, Bustleton Avenue near Byberry Road, and it was the weekend that it opened. And my love for for the original series, which by that point I was watching every single night at 7 p.m. on WPHL Channel 17, Philadelphia. <laughs> That's how the announcer said it. And I just was was buying like the poster books and the trading cards and the, the photo novels and I had the uh, the Miko action figures and, and I just was anything I could get my hands on for Star Trek. But, you know, I only had – 79 episodes of a live action series and 22 episodes of the animated series to to base my passion on. And now here's Star Trek, the motion picture on a big screen. And what I vividly remember about that very first time seeing a movie was when the shuttle with Kirk and Scotty uh, does a lap around this, the, the dock, the space mm-hmm. dock, and Kirk sees the Enterprise, the movie detailed version of the Enterprise for the first time and that look of love that he had when he saw the Enterprise was the look of love that I had when I saw the movie version Mm. of the Starship Enterprise. Mm. So for me, it's exactly the same time. It might have been the same night. I lined up with my family um, at the Cinema One in Larkspur, California. And for me, like to, that that experience, it's, like I was thinking about it quite a bit, is that it's akin to what happened a year before when I saw Superman mm. in the same movie theater. Because here was my geeky, guilty pleasure that I knew that I loved. And then here I was in this world where it had been – 
Like the platonic ideal was flo- thrown up on the screen and I was with a cheering crowd that loved the same thing I loved. Yeah. It was an amazing, amazing experience. Yeah. When did you see it for the first time? <laughs> well, the first film I ever saw in the theaters for Star Trek was Wrath of Khan. So wow. I, I go backwards into right. seeing – and I probably saw three before I saw one. And it won it because it was – I think it was a reissue or whatever. It was, like it was on VHS and I rented it, watched it at my house and I – I have never not liked the movie, but it has grown in estimation over the years for me. Agreed. That's what I would say. I think I was too young to watch that movie. I think at 13 years old, there is so much that Kirk is going through in this movie, that Spock is going through in this movie, that even um, Stephen Collins is going through in this movie that I could not conceive of. This idea of searching for your creator of God. This I, the, the themes that they're dealing with in this movie are so heavy that as a 12 or 13-year-old, I didn't grasp him as strongly. As I get older, Absolutely. I appreciate it so much. Whereas five, I don't appreciate him. And I'm telling you, one, I thoroughly do. And that was first. And I remember sitting down and watching. And I think it was the three-hour version or whatever it was, the longest version that they had that was out there. I watched the whole thing. This is interesting because, like, you know, you and I saw the motion picture. Right. And I certainly had issues with it even as an 11-year-old, even though I did love it. Um, but there were things about it that made it feel not very, very Star Trek-y to me. Certainly. So to go from motion picture to Wrath of Khan, I think I said this when we talked about this on the cinephiles. I went, okay, that's more like it. And even the film critic for the uh, the New York Times said that's more like it when uh, she, uh, Janet Maslin, I think it was, reviewed uh, Star Trek Two. So – to you, for you to go from two to three to one. Right. So what what did you think the first time you saw it? Were you like, boy, this is not what I expected at not all? Not what I expected at all. Yeah. But what's so funny is now, I think because I saw all the other ones, before I went back and saw this one, I'm able to see where he's going next. So I'm able to not be like unsettled by these interpretations of these characters that I fall in love with watching the original series. You have a bearded McCoy. You have I love a bearded McCoy. McCoy bearded McCoy. McCoy is the best. You have that's the most manly McCoy ever. Look, you have a Spock who is has his other plans and he's got longer hair, right? And you have a sh- you have a Kirk. This is very interesting. When I watch this, you have a Kirk that is. A bit of a dick who, oh, is, yeah. who is full on wanting something back and doesn't care who he steps on to get it. Whereas in Khan, it's more him accepting this admiral position and Spock going, if you want my personal opinion, your place is on a starship. You should be admiral. This is different. This is Kirk undercutting Stephen Collins to get what he wants. Kirk pulled a dick move it's to get the move. Enterprise back. He absolutely did. You know, yeah. there are parts of Kirk's character in the motion picture that were unlikable. And, you know, he he snaps at McCoy does. a couple of times. And, and you know, uh, you know, we can get into this more as as we yeah. uh, we talk further, but but ultimately the things that I didn't like about the motion picture when I first saw it are things that I grew to appreciate about it because of my uh, uh, growing knowledge over the years of film. Yeah, and that by that I mean the chronology. Here you have these three guys, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. They have not been in the same room together, uh, much less the same bridge of a starship for two and a half years. Yeah. Kirk takes an admiral position. Spock grows his hair, goes off to get the colonar to purge himself of the remaining emotions he has. McCoy sets up a practice, grows his beard. So they're, they're, they've been separate. Now, like you said, Kirk pulls a dick move to get the Enterprise back. 
But then he doesn't know his way around his own starship. Right. Remember Which when he I says love. he goes, "Yo, I'm in turbo shaft day." She goes, "Yeah, that back that way, you idiot." <laughs> <laughs> and then and then when uh, you know he he basically uh, you know. Uh, kidnaps McCoy mm-hmm. and you know who does not want to be there he still doesn't like to be beamed anywhere and then when Spock comes back he's got a motive and you don't trust him no no and this is a Kirk that we've never experienced this is a Kirk who's scared who was on the precipice of middle age yep. right in Khan it's more it's a softer Kirk who's trying to figure out where he belongs well, he's in middle age he's in oh, middle age right in but yeah. in this he's on the precipice when he brings bones on I know we're, like we said we're not going to get to it but when he brings bones on he goes I need you I need you I need you there is like a desperation mm-hmm. if I don't have this who the fuck am I yeah. and I think it's incredible to watch as an older man now because you go oh yeah I remember being that guy mm-hmm. And I, then I remember as you get older, you become Kirk as he goes through the stages. You, you, you can, when you're younger, you pull your dick moves sometimes to get what you want. But as you get older, you soften up and you realize what you've done and what you, could, you should have done, those kinds of things. So to me, it never bothers me that these are all presented this way in motion picture because they are softened as the years go on. You know, the, the fact that they did not get along in Star Trek The Motion Picture, right. it, it made sense chronologically because they hadn't been together for a while. They're on a starship that is not familiar to them. They have to find their way again. And finding their way is what is happening throughout the course of Star Trek The Motion Picture. By By the time they all fall back into their old positions and feel comfortable with who they are, who they are to each other and what their positions are on this brand new enterprise, like that's really where the Star Trek I wanted to see at the time. That's where it really begins, but it was over. <laughs> so, so uh, first of all, we got, we've given lots of hints of places we're going to go. I, <laughs> I, I, I essentially agree with everything you've said. My, I, always, I don't think it's done quite as well as I want it to be done. All the character stuff you're describing is in there, yeah. but there's so much time spent on other things oh, yeah. that, that, that they don't get to develop what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know how long this episode is going to be. I want to jump back into just a tiny bit of history, but for a specific reason, which is I don't want to go into the entire history of the original series or anything like that. But it is there's something I noticed as I was kind of thinking about it is we have a pilot that doesn't have Shatner that they they actually do a second pilot. Very rare. Uh, very rare. Then the show is what we would say today on the bubble and gets fan mail to keep it on the air. This has never happened before. Mm -hmm. There's never been a show. I mean certainly shows had fan mail but not like a organized letter writing campaign like this. That was the first. That was the first time. Is Star Trek the first geek nerd show? That's what I'm talking about. Yes, it is. Is that is that and then, you know, it stays on for three seasons. There's still tons of fan mail trying to get it to stay on. And then this insane thing happens, which is the show doesn't die. Like, I mean, you know, there are more, you know, Bonanza was on for 20 years, but they're not Bonanza conventions. Right. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. But there wow. starts to be, but this show that's on for three years and, and of which, although there are some of the greatest episodes in the history of television, in my yep. opinion, City there are also yeah. some some episodes which are fairly terrible. Box Brain. Yeah. And Children Shall Children Shall Lead. That yeah, one. that's awful. I, I, can, I can be amused and watch Box Brain. Children Shall Lead, I can't. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, there are episodes horrible. of the third season that I refuse to watch, just, even as a fan, yeah. But but people start writing fan fiction and they start, you know, buying merchandise and creating merchandise and then these conventions start. And this is – that's never happened before. Steve, you're, you're, you're also touching on syndication. Yes. Absolutely. Syndication 
is where Star Trek found its audience. Yeah. Syndication, you know, first of all, usually a TV series has to be on for 100 episodes before they would even consider syndicating it. Yeah. But, you know, they were able to syndicate Star Trek starting in, in late 1969 with Philadelphia being one of the one of the six cities that, that picked up Star Trek for syndication. So I, I like to think of myself, and I think you guys are of this generation too, we're from the syndication generation oh, yeah. of yeah. Star Trek fans. We discovered Star Trek when it was on every single day, five days a week at least. Right. And that is what that is what, what really made the fandom for Star Trek escalate to the point where Paramount, and you can't talk about the motion picture without talking briefly, and I mean briefly, about the Star Trek series that, that almost was. Right. That's Star Trek Phase Two. In 1976, Paramount announced that they were going to move forward on a brand new television series called Star Trek Phase Two. And at the time, Roddenberry was back as producer and all the cast members from the original series except for Leonard Nimoy who did not want to play Spock again every week. So they replaced Spock with a character named Zahn played by David, Cat David Gattro who is seen briefly in the motion picture and he was going to be a pure Vulcan who was very young and always trying to prove himself to Kirk. And then you had Decker and then you had Ilea. And for wow. so Decker and Ilea were in the phase two. Yes. In the series. They were in the series. And was there cause correct me for oh. so so was there a movie before Phase – like were they talking about a movie before Phase 2? Well, this went back and forth for for about two years. It was going to be a weekly series that was – a weekly series, by the way, that was going to launch a brand-new network called the Paramount Network, right, right. which is what I think Voyager did in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and then it went to being a TV movie called Planet of the Titans. It was going to be a you know a cheaply made TV movie and it was going to be directed by Philip Kaufman who did – you know. Uh, wow. right the body snatchers, right. the right, right stuff. And then uh, <laughs> the, the, the big wigs of Paramount, the big wigs back then were Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg mm. at Paramount. Mm. They said after Star Wars opened and changed everything, those guys decided we're making a Star Trek movie. Like, like Eisenberg, uh, Michael Eisner said, what do we have? What's, what's our Star Wars? And they're like, duh, we've got Star Trek. And at the time, they were already moving forward with it as a TV series, a new TV series. They were building sets. They were doing lighting. They had costumes that were going to be very similar to the original series costumes. They uh, had the cast. Most of the cast was all in place. They uh, were, were building a model of the Enterprise. That was a cross between the original series and the movie version wow. that we know. And they were not telling the people working on this TV show that they were not going to make a TV show. They just had them keep going. They were, they were bringing in scripts. Scripts were written for Star Trek Phase Two. One of them uh, uh, wound up being an episode of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. And then they decided to go big and announce that they were making the film. And the only way Nimoy came back was for him to work out uh, the licensing royalties that he lost that he never got paid for. And this applied to Shatner as well. And uh, oh, Nimoy yeah, – sure it did. Do you remember that, that beer billboard that had uh, Spock's ears were pointed downwards and then he drinks a beer – and his ears go pointed up again and he says like uh, logical or something or fascinating. Oh. 
Well, Leonard Nimoy was not happy when he saw that billboard and he sued Paramount and he said, the only way I will move forward to making a Star Trek movie and come back as Spock is if you pay me, you know, fuck you pay me is yeah, what he said. Yeah. And they, they, they paid him. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 so a couple of things I want to touch on. One is, is that in all the things that Star Trek is the origin on, you know, we're talking about like geek culture or fan yeah. culture and their influence on creating what happens. And one of these other things is previous this time, you're in a movie and someone wants to use your face on a lunchbox or a toy or a pair of pajamas or whatever. You didn't get any of that. No. It's no. Nimoy. You that, it away in perpetuity. Yeah. And right. Nimoy and Shatner is who makes that happen, which to me, it's like, man, you shouldn't be able to have your face up on a beer billboard right, right. and they don't pay you for it. Right. Um, well, the, yeah. the other thing I was thinking, and this is just a coincidence with the cinephiles, is that the last movie we did here is Chinatown. Oh. oh, yeah. And that's Robert Evans running Paramount from 1966 yep. until 1975, yeah. which means that – and he's not mentioned. I don't know what his involvement with Star Trek was, but he had to be involved because during the, the – doing the second movie or phase two or any of those things. Well, if Robert Evans left to become an independent producer in 75, which is when Marathon Man came out, right. uh, then that means – that at the time, if they were talking about bringing Star Trek back as a series, it was still TV. It didn't oh. become like movie stuff until 77 or But I thought there were movie scripts uh, that were for feature that were written in like 72 because there's like the God thing. Oh, the, yeah, the God thing and there's in, in Thy Image and then there's Planet of the Titans. But, uh, the, yeah. uh, you know, Roddenberry, you know, Shatner actually tells a story. He was on the Paramount lot. Uh, in the early 70s doing some guest starring thing on something. It might have been uh, Barbary Coast. Mm -hmm. And he went to the parent, went to the Hart Building, which is where the old Star Trek offices were, just to kind of reminisce. Sure. And he hears someone typing away on his typewriter, and it's Gene Roddenberry's old office. And he looks in, and Gene Roddenberry is in his old office <laughs> writing stuff for, for a new Star Trek thing. And, and they, they talked about it, and I think Shatner just didn't think it would ever happen. Yeah. So he just didn't think anything of it. He's like, yeah, good to see you, Gene. <laughs> <laughs> so they finally decide after Star Wars comes out that we're going to make a bit. We're not going to make – we're not going to make Phase 2. We're not going to make a TV series. We're not going to make a cheap movie. We're going to make a big movie. Yeah. And they bring in a big director. Robert Wise. Yeah. We have talked about Robert Wise twice now on The Cinephiles. Of course, he's the editor of Citizen Kane. Yep. And then we also talked about him when we discussed West Side Story. Yeah, right. And Robert Wise, therefore, has a history of dealing with difficult Temperamental, mm. big ego people Who like could Orson Welles, possibly talking and about? Jerome Robbins, <laughs> and the man, the making of this movie is insane. It what, really is. Is there a book about the making of this movie, or is it just a podcast? Like, what, where can you I'll find tell out? you what? I'm so glad you asked because when we're done with this, I have a book to show you, fellas. Done. Uh, it is a book that finally came out. Cinefantastic magazine is a, 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 one of the two great sci-fi magazines yeah. over the years next to Starlock. Mm -hmm. uh, they really got into it though. Um, if uh, uh, if uh, you know, like Us Weekly was Starlog, uh, Entertainment Weekly was, was Cinefantastic. Yeah, I got it. So, so this, you know, they were doing all these interviews with everyone involved in the motion picture, the actors and the producers, the director, and like even Douglas Trumbull, everybody. And they had all these extensive interviews that they had done over the years while production was actually happening, while the making of the film was actually happening. And these were candid, very honest because of all the problems that they were having. So the amount, the, the, the amount of interviews that they conducted 
compared to the amount that went into the magazine was like a small percentage, a very, very small percentage. So just a couple of years ago, just a few years ago, they published a book that was basically all the unedited interviews oh, that wow. they did over the years. And this thing is thick. It is a thick book. You want to know about the making of this movie and you want like the kid gloves to be off. You want people to be honest and not pull their punches and be honest about the frustrations of the making of Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. I got to get you guys okay. this book. If it's on Amazon, it's amazing. I, get it. I mean, it is such, um, it is, it, it is really maybe more than any, we've talked about movies that have messy productions, Apocalypse Now and Jaws and even things like Blade Runner, which we talked about. Mm -hmm. But this one to me is a miracle that this movie because you've got you've got Roddenberry rewriting other people's scripts. What's the I forgot the name of the other screenwriter? Uh, Alan Dean Foster. Alan Dean Foster. Yeah. Um, is is that there were moments where we hear there's a new script and then Roddenberry took it and instead of giving Paramount this, their script, he gave him his own version of the script. Oh, that's right. Which they think is terrible and they're like, what? and and then find out that no, no, that's not the script they're supposed to see. You have Shatner and Nimoy who I guess because it took so long to make this, they had something in their contract that triggered that, oh, if it spends this much time, you now have script approval, yeah. which I don't know who would put a, a time clause <laughs> in a contract to give of all people William Shatner script. So now yeah. you've got Roddenberry doing rewrite and then it goes to Shatner and Nimoy and they're hammering out the – and Robert Wise, who my understanding is the calmest, kindest, mellowest person just trying to keep this ship from sinking as it goes along with – along with huge cost overruns and special effects problems and it's – and and taking – sets and all this stuff that were built for a TV show and turning them into movie sets. But but the thing is they did turn them into movie sets. Think about it. Up until Star Trek 2009, Star Trek the motion picture is the only feature film from the original series in The Next Generation that looks like it was made to be a feature film. Right. It was made by the motion picture department at Paramount. Yeah. It looks like a big movie. It, it looks hundred percent. You know the effects still hold up. Yes. The production design. I mean, you know, so the the look of the sets were deliberately bland. You know, did the the colors didn't pop like they did in the original series. Right. And you know, with the the lighting in the background, with all the the gels that they use, the purple and the yellow and the green, um, which I think gives TOS its charm. But. But no other feature film from those first two crews looks like the motion picture. And and no other film, you would never see those uniforms again. Yeah. I hate them, else. by the way. I, I, I hate those costumes. I appreciate what they are because they are the, for the one and only time we saw these costumes. Yeah. What do for you think good of the reasons. I, I, I never minded it because I uh, – to me, there is an unintentional symbolism. They're drab. Why are they drab? <laughs> why? Why? Because they're all – in a gray area of their lives. They're not sure where they're supposed to go next. Yeah. The Enterprise itself. Who is my captain? Mm -hmm. I thought it was this guy. Now you're telling me it's this guy. So everything is gray on the ship. And the only person with any real color is who? Aaliyah. Why? She's used in a certain way by V'ger. She's in all this bright white, sexy as hell. Persez Kamada. Yeah, Persez yeah. In this white, all white, but she stands out from everybody else. And it's interesting because there's a purpose. She's being used for a purpose. Sure. Right? Everybody else is in gray or drab colors. And you're right. And I think it's, I don't think it was on purpose. I think they were trying to be futuristic, but it kind of works unintentionally. The cast hated those costumes. I'm sure they did. They look yeah. like they're all wearing their pajamas. They're, of course. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Because it's a military and you all look the same in the fucking military. Well, that's true. So that's, that's true, too. Yeah. You, you know, I, I love original series costumes. I love Wrath of Khan costumes. 
They, these ones, not so much. <laughs> I have one more, one yep. very quick thing to say before we get into the movie, which is when, because I listened to our Wrath of Khan episode again, which oh. I highly recommend uh, <laughs> all of you who want to hear the very first yeah. time I met Scott Mann. Oh, that true, was true. our first. That was our first podcast together. It's still a really good one. I mean, you know what? Maybe we'll re-release it. Oh, you know, maybe. No, maybe yeah. you should just turn the sound down on my parts of the interviews when you're. Uh... <laughs> I, I, just, I didn't quite to talk know how to one. how to ride the volume on a man's podcast at the time. <laughs> I, I got to give a big shout out to John Roker. He he is braving braving his 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 cold to be here to talk oh. about. You know this this means a lot, man. Th- thank this you. Does man. mean a lot. So one of the things I'm I not see... contagious. I <laughs> how do people know if they're contagious? This is always one of the most <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> things. Well, I think once you're on what the... a great question. <laughs> I think when you're on the back end of being sick, you're not contagious. That's yeah, true. I've heard, yes. I've heard people walk up to me. I'm not contagious. Stay with me. One of the things I'm not there. One of the things I said during a Rathacon podcast is at some point. I want, I'm going to introduce my son to Star Trek, and I don't know how I'm going to do it. Yeah. Guess what? He did it. It was Star Trek, the motion picture. Wow. That is his first Star Trek. Did he like it? Loved it. You didn't show him, like, sitting on the edge of forever? I, I thought that was – I tried to – so what I should say, I tried to show him Trouble with Tribbles <laughs> because I thought it was funny and he would uh, – he was bored in the first, like, three minutes and then I didn't push him on How it. How old is he again? He's eight. And if he's eight years old and he's not going to dig the Tribbles, yeah, you did the right thing. <laughs> he was – grab the concept of motion picture at eight. It's pretty positive. He was, that is very no, cool. Yeah. He actually was – Saying some stuff. Well, we'll, maybe we'll get to it. Anyway, it was a lot of fun showing you my first Star Trek. And now we are going to enter the world of Star Trek, the motion picture, and we enter it through an overture. An overture. One of the... I'd forgotten was in the movie. Me too. This is Ilea's theme, composed by Jerry Goldsmith, who did the score. Who also did Chinatown, the last... Who also did... There you go. Also a Paramount movie. And... The Star Trek The Motion Picture came out December 7th, 1979. Two weeks later, The Black Hole by oh. Disney. I fucking love The Black Hole. Great movie. Great movie. I haven't seen it in forever. Oh, my God. Oh my you God. have Disney Plus? Maximilian? Yeah. If you have Disney Plus, everyone it. listening, it's, it's, if you have Disney Plus, you Scott. have to watch The Black Hole. It was Disney's first ever PG live action movie. Yep. It is their – I don't want to say it's their Star Wars. What it is, it's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Right. In space, it's dark AF. It is dark. It is dark, yeah. but but still fun. It's so fun. You have a couple of cute robots. Yeah, but yeah, Vincent. Robert Forster is the captain of the Palomino. Oh, right. A young Robert Forster. Shell is the, uh, the villain. Uh, the villain. He's a yeah. uh, he's a uh, uh, Reinhardt, captain of the Cygnus. That's right. But those two films were the last two films up until Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight to have an overture. Really? Yes. Oh wow! Yeah, that so, is a fantastic bit of trivia. They, like, like after the black hole and motion picture, no other movie had an overture wow. until the Hateful Eight. Wow. Quentin Tarantino. Of course, it's Tarantino is going to bring back a staple of an overture. You can get away with it. But since we're talking about Ilya's theme and the overture, you just have to just say that that what I absolutely loved, what has endured for me, and never faltered about the motion picture is the complete score by Jerry yeah. Goldsmith. Yeah. It is one of my all-time favorite scores, and it is a score that almost didn't happen at all until Robert Wise sent him back to the drawing board. And that score, especially the the, the motif for the motion picture, was reused to a great effect in Next Generation. Yeah, so yeah. if you are a fan of Next Generation and have never watched this movie, it is a little shocking because you're like, yeah. no, this is the Next Generation theme. 
Scott and I were talking off mic. I did. I I had forgotten that the themes in the Star Trek movies are not from the series. Right. And so when I was rewatching this again for the first time in a while, um, to hear that like all of that, I went to. I, it occurred to me. I was like, Oh, wait a minute. This isn't. This is not in the series at all. Yeah. And I had always connected that theme with the series and the movies. Interesting. But no, it's only for the movies. The only time oh, you hear man. the Alexander Curran <clears throat> Star Trek theme, and it's really just the first few bars, is when Kirk is doing his captain's log. Yeah. Otherwise, it is Jerry Goldsmith's theme, which I thought was just arousing, exciting. It it's is great. A, it's it's great. a great theme. But there's so many great themes throughout the film. You know, you have Ilya's theme, you have Vidra's theme. Uh, the, the obviously, the, yeah, that that big, you know, yeah. guitar, it's 15 foot thing, strength thing that they use, and it, it's it's it is such a uh, uh, you know, so many great themes we'll get through as we go through the scenes. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so the overture starts things off, and then the opening credits. Yeah, um, which apparently people cheered. When 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 those names come up, oh. you know, when the in the theaters when they first still brings it. a smile. I'm sure yeah. they must have been like so happy to see it come. Oh out. yeah, like we're right? back, like we're on the yeah. big screen. Yeah. And we start off right away with some Klingons, and right from the beginning, you see, oh, everything is upgraded. Every- we have yeah. this looks amazing. These are birds. Now, these you are s- birds of prey. Yeah, you see three Klingon birds of prey. Yeah. You see Viger. Yes. You see the big blue cloud that these little tiny Klingon ships flying in formation are approaching. And then you see the Klingons themselves. Right. And they look nothing like yep. those bad boys from the original series. <laughs> Something that, by the way, was never to this day has never been officially explained. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a Star Trek tradition to always change the look of the Klingons mm. when you're redoing it or doing oh, it again. Yeah, yeah, it's you're right. always a Star Trek tradition. <laughs> yeah. And not explain it. No. <laughs> Discovery did the same thing. Uh, yeah. Certainly 2009 did the same thing with Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, we see them like on tactical display and they're going to fire some torpedoes and they fire the torpedoes and nothing. No effect. Yeah. No effect. And we see the Klingon commander who is Mark Leonard. Mark, Mark Leonard. Leonard. Yeah. Mark Leonard who played not not only a Klingon in Star Trek The Motion Picture, he was the Romulan, Romulan. commander in Balance of Terror and he That's was right. Spock's father in Journey to Babel. Yeah. So, Bal- Balance of cool. Terror, by the way, that might be, that and City of the Edge of Forever are my two favorite Star Trek Balance of Terror episodes. is great. It's great. Balance, I mean, the pacing of that episode and just the the mirror, the the, the mutual respect that mm-hmm. these two commanders have for each other. And Leonard great. is scary in that yeah. episode. Oh, yeah. As a Romulan. Um, he's fantastic. And we're out on a space station and they're in some sort of contact. This is a Federation space Epsilon station. Epsilon 9. Epsilon 9 with the Klingon ship and the we kind of see the outside of this battle, which I don't quite know how we see. It's one of those great Star Trek things that we can see whatever we really want to see. And the Klingons are attacking and they ask, well, who are these guys fighting? We go, it's unknown. No idea. Now, now the commander on the space station, Epsilon 9, is David Gatro. He was the guy who oh. who was- Oh, the, the, the Vulcan. He was the Vulcan in oh, Star wow. Trek Phase 2. And when that never happened, they gave him the small role in Star Trek The Motion Picture, and no one ever heard from him again. <laughs> and we cut to this huge thing, which we later find out is V'ger, and we hear that sound, V'ger's theme that you mentioned before. And some giant electric ball comes up and hits the Klingon vessel and wipes him out. The intensity of that scene is that the 
the uh, Klingon commander, played by Mark Leonard, is watching one of the other Klingon ships right. disappear yeah. from this massive fireball that is emanating from V'ger, this massive fireball that is bigger <clears throat> than a Klingon bird of prey. Mm. And then as they you know, try to uh, take evasive action and get the hell out of there, it's just too late. And then uh, uh, we, we've uh, plotted the orbit of this uh, thing. It's headed uh, at the direct heading for Earth. <laughs> <laughs> it's, fu- it's funny the way that Star Trek retreads, you know, because that's Star Trek IV. Some we've encountered yeah, something, yeah, yeah. big thing out in space. The whale noise. It's heading towards Earth. Yeah. And it's also J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Is there some big thing and it's heading towards us, you know? Paramount yeah. was insistent and has been insistent uh, in, in many, many cases to make Earth threatened in the Star Trek feature films. And like if you look at the three J.J. movies, the first two, 2009 and Into Darkness, are pretty much Earthbound for the most part. The third one, which was not Earthbound, which I love beyond because it feels like a Star Trek movie. Yeah, I agree. Uh, It it just felt like a throwback. Um, Does not take place near Earth at all. Mm -hmm. Well, what I never occurred to me is that Earth is not threatened Future Federation Earth is not really threatened in the series. We go back in time and threaten Right. Earth. You never see Earth in the 23rd century in the original series, but you do in the motion picture right. the first time. Uh, but right now we're not going to Earth. We are going to Vulcan. Vulcan. And we see Spock, long-haired Nimoy, praying. Yeah, we just, John is holding up like that. He's doing this crazy <laughs> I love the way he play, plays. And this is the Kolinar. Right. The oh, shedding yeah. of all emotion. Yeah. yeah. Some ritual purification and Bach fails. He fails. But well, and he knows it. He makes he stops mm-hmm. the cer- the ceremony because he knows he's not worthy to receive. He's not going to lie to get the cult. And they were going to give it to him because they trusted his integrity that much. Mm-hmm. And when he stops it, it's because he senses another consciousness. There's something else he's got to do first. And he has to follow that. And the con- I like that they say the consciousness is touching his human blood. Yeah. I think – so this is where I go like, oh, I wish there was a little more in this film is that there's so many parallels that are in the movie yeah. of of Spock and his relationship to emotion, his relationship to his human side and what V'ger is going to want. They're, they're perfectly paralleled but they're not really delved into. And something you said that I'd never thought of uh, just a few minutes ago, you mentioned that, oh, two and a half years ago they split up. And, and at that time, Spock has made this choice to do this thing. Right. And I go, oh, that's really interesting because by the end of the series – uh, the original series, he had he called Jim, his friend yeah. Jim. Yeah. Like right. they were clearly friends. He was more emotional. And then somehow in these last two and a half years, he decided to get rid of that. And now he has to go back with the people that had really worked on his human side. Mm. That's all really interesting to me. It's, you know, you can't go home again. You know, there's that. It's, it's uh, you know, they, they all lost touch with each other. So – so that you know that they were almost like friends by circumstance because they were serving you know in the confines of a starship for right, five years. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's much much deeper than that because they reconnect in a different way. But seeing Spock, I remember when I saw the movie for the first time, you know, seeing Spock with long hair like that—that that was like really far out. It was, yeah, I literally, mean, and then far like, out. <laughs> like when he when the uh, Vulcan priestess, uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, he like you said, John. I mean, it wasn't that he failed. No, he rejected it. He rejected it because he wasn't, he wasn't ready. ready. He wasn't ready. And 
you know, the look of Vulcan. And when we saw Vulcan in a mock time, you know, that, mm-hmm. that red sky, you know, and the, you know, the fight, the, uh, the poet R. Uh, the, I'm sorry. No, no. The uh, Ponfar. 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 Yes. Uh, uh, the T'Pau. To Pring and Stan. Who, anyway. who, who plays the, uh, is it is it someone from the series no. who plays the, no, the different, Vulcan? Different. Okay. I thought they were going to use Celia uh, Lofsky. Uh, yes. But I, I guess she had already passed away by that point, you know, 1979. Um, okay, so now you've set up the Klingons. You set up this threat that we don't know anything about. Yeah. You set up, you know, Vulcan, which I think was really cool because the way Vulcan just with the the set and the, the visual effects in that in that scene. And now where do we go? We go to – and I have to say, as the native San Franciscan, discovering that Starfleet Command – that the capital of the Federation is in my hometown is cool? so cool. <laughs> the scene with Spock ends on sort of a, a down note, one of sadness. Right. It's a dark scene. You know, visually it's dark. And then the brightness of San Francisco Earth and the shuttle flying away. And you you hear the motif for Star Trek, the motion. I'm going to say Star Trek, the motion picture, because that's what everybody knows. But you hear Jerry Goldsmith's motif for Star Trek come in again. And it's and then the, the shuttle comes to a stop. And you see Shatner through the window of the door. And then the door opens. And there he is. It's Captain Kirk. He's like he's it's it's Kirk. It's William Back. Shatner. Like oh my god! But he he's not wearing the gold shirt. No. He's wearing this white thing, and he looks very serious. He meets Lieutenant Commander Somak, who is a Vulcan who has been assigned to the Enterprise, and he talks about reporting to the Enterprise for Captain Decker. And Kirk says, "I'm on my way to a meeting with Admiral Aguro, which will not last more than three minutes. Report to me on the Enterprise in one hour. Report to you, sir." And he says, it is my intention to be on that ship following that meeting. Wait, no, what he says is, it is my intention to be on that ship following that meeting. <laughs> Report to me in three hours. <laughs> um, so we immediately are like, okay, something's yeah. going on. Yeah. I always thought this was a missing scene. I would have liked to have seen this three-minute meeting between him and Sephora and Kirk. Yeah. Because so Kirk, as we see in later movies, has no problem – Going up to authority and saying, "Oh, sure, she's really so." Yeah, so to and in real life as well, I'm sure. But seeing him do that with the admiral and seeing the reaction, because maybe it would have softened Kirk a little bit for him to go. He's unseasoned. He's inexperienced. There's this thing out there, like with Khan. Like with Khan, you show me a man who wants to kill me after all these years. You know, I show me a son that, and you show me a son that would love to help him. You know, there's these things of like helplessness with Kirk that makes him human. It makes him vulnerable and makes you attached to him. In this, he's so just determined. If we'd had that meeting, I think it would have softened the edges a little bit. This is this is the (laughs) thing that I. This is the thing. Is like I think it's all there. Yeah. I just wish we had a little bit more to fill out the care. Because the thing, and again, because I just listened to us talk about Wrath of Khan, the thing that we discussed there is there's so much time spent on the characters. Right. That's for sure. Um, There's too much time spent on other things in this movie. Yeah. It, and I understand that criticism. I do. I get it. We we end up with Scotty. We hear there's a tr- problem with the transporter, and we also hear Admiral. We have just finished eighteen months redesigning and refitting the Enterprise. How in the name of hell do they expect me to have a ready in twelve hours? And they get into the shuttle. So first, let, let's get through what the exposition is, which is that Kirk informs Scotty that there's this big thing coming towards Earth, yep. an alien object of unbelievable destructive power, is less than three days away from this planet. The only starship in interception range is the Enterprise. Ready or not, she launches in 12 hours. 
And Scotty's like, well, the, the crew hasn't had time with the new equipment. You know, we haven't tested the ship at warp power. We've got an untried captain. And, I and love, he gives him a look. He yeah. gives him a look. And an untried captain. And I love Kirk's response. Two and a half years as chief of Starfleet operations may have made me a little stale, but I wouldn't exactly consider myself untried. <laughs> they gave her back to me, Scotty. Gave her back, sir? I thought that was that easy with the Gura. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, great little scene. And, uh, and, and you know, seeing Scotty stand at the transporter when Kirk being the board, you know, with the mustache. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're seeing – listen, this is really what wasn't fair to the cast, that it's supposed to be two and a half years since the end of the five-year mission but uh, or the end of the original series. And it's been nine, 10 years. Yeah. So they – are only supposed to look two and a half years older after they've aged 10 years in middle age. Not fair. With yeah. the de-aging technology. Yeah, yeah where exactly. was de-aging technology then? <laughs> and then we get extremely long but gorgeous shuttle journey to the Enterprise. I What's your take on that? For the record, I'd yeah. like to say this officially, I have never understood people's issues with this in my entire life. Kalinowski tweeted about it on Twitter and I said – Come on, you haven't stared at your IG championship bell for five minutes. This is when you love something. You can stare at it, walk around it, be entranced by it for whatever reasons. For Kirk, the only thing he's ever purely, purely loved, aside from Spock, is that fucking ship. Yep. And so for me, when we see it, and it, it, since the first time I saw it, I have never understood people's issues with it because it is helping you also as an audience fall back in love with the Enterprise. Absolutely. And the cinematic version, as you mentioned earlier, Scott, of the Enterprise. So you want to explore every nook and cranny around it, and I've never, it's never bothered me. Yeah, the way the way that scene plays out, you know, I understand that people have issues like, oh my God, the trip around the Enterprise took forever. But it's such a, like it said, the, the, the buildup yeah. to when Kirk f- finally sees it not being obstructed by the space dock, the buildup to that was – it was such a great payoff to see the look on Kirk's face first yes. and then to see the Enterprise itself. And he's so – like you said, it's it's his first love. He's and, in trance. And, and we're – seeing our first love too, but it's the Enterprise in a way we've never seen it before. So we're discovering this new Enterprise at the same time that Admiral James T. Kirk is. Yeah. And again, the thing that makes that makes the scene just work so well is the score by Jerry Goldsmith. You're hearing the motif for Star Trek, the motion picture. Basically, it's the Enterprise theme is uh, played very slow and beautifully with, you know, flutes. And it's, uh, I love watching that scene. Yeah. Here's the thing, <laughs> is that Enterprise is spectacular. It is. And, and they actually, they had been building a new Enterprise for the Phase 2 series, and, and Robert Wise came in, very correctly said, this will not play on the big screen. We need to be able to, and so they built a huge, huge Enterprise model. It looks amazing. The special effects shots are amazing. Jerry Goldsmith's score, I 100% agree, is great. But what I don't understand, Robert Wise is an editor. One of the great editors of all time. He cut Citizen uh, King. Oh, oh. And the basic rule is that if you're not advancing the story emotionally, you're not doing your job. And that every shot, five minutes, is a five-minute long sequence. It and it, every shot is 
Kirk is looking at the Enterprise going, wow, that looks great. And then you see the Enterprise looks great. Back to Kirk. Wow, that looks great. And the Enterprise looks great. Another shot of Kirk. Same emotion. We are not actually advancing the story. And another basic rule of editing is if I can cut something out and you will never notice it, then it probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. This is – and again, I said this exact same thing when we did Wrath of Khan, but I'm going to say it again. Uh-oh. You have the same scene in Wrath of Khan. Kirk on the shuttle going to the Enterprise True. as you do in this. The one in Wrath of Khan is like a minute and it is so much more filled with emotion because it's about Kirk. It's about what he's thinking about. This to me, it just stinks of showing off your great visual effects. Yeah, yeah. The scene in, in Wrath of Khan, you're right. It goes by mighty fast. By the way, the footage of uh, the, the visual effects that they use in Wrath of Khan when they show Kirk going to the Enterprise – is it's the same scene yeah. from from the motion picture? They just cut the hell out of it, and you're right; it does work. You know, Kirk's just uh, talking to Sue. He goes, "I hate inspections," and Sue says, "I'm delighted any chance to go on the Enterprise." Well, so, and you're so filled with Kirk's emotion in Wrath of Khan. In here, it's just he loves the Enterprise. It's, <laughs> it lacks the complexity. I'm watching, but I would disagree with you. I I think for me, you're walking into Kirk's. Kirk never shows you the things he really loves. It's never he never really lets that guard down, you know. And so to uh, uh, until uh, or one of the rare moments is when he talks to David at the end of Khan. It's great. That's yeah. the, those oh, are that's rare moments moment. that you get to show. So to, he's almost consumed by it, which makes sense because, like you said, Steve, it's supposed to build character. You see, he's almost like Ahab. He's looking at that ship. He's almost like, uh, and I'm doing a simulation. His face, his eyes are almost bulging out of his head because there is such a love he has for that ship mm-hmm. that makes him a maniac. Yeah, almost. yeah. And yeah, so, he's obsessed. to me, I think it is uh, uh, advancing the story emotionally because we're getting a window into what Kirk's journey is going to be in this whole time while he's on the ship, which is this maniacal desire to confront this thing and prove himself as the captain again and the all this thing, kind of but stuff. But the thing is, I mean, is I that... get your point. I just don't agree. Do you get my point? <laughs> Do you get it? Steve, um, I get it. Uh, film, time in film is a zero-sum game. Any time you add to one sequence, you have taken it away from other things. And what my feeling about the film is that, boy, we could have used that scene with Admiral Degora. Boy, I could have used one more scene Fair. with Spock. I would have loved to see a Spock-McCoy scene where the two of them are alone together in this film. It would have given us so much right. about – and so if we spend five minutes on a special effects sequence that we could do in one minute, that's four minutes we don't have for something else. But the inherent belief and the foundation of that thought is that you think the scene is a waste. If you don't think the scene is a waste, you don't think it's a Waste of time. I think that there's better spending of the time, I, I, including maybe this time, and we can move on. But they, they were, they were. You're not the only one. Obviously, millions of people. Feel the same. There was a lot of inspiration here to prove that they could do for Star Trek what Star Wars did for Star Wars on the big screen. Even though Star Wars and Star Trek are fundamentally different, okay. one is a fantasy, one is science fiction. One's in a galaxy far, far away. One is us. One is, One's a one long is time action ago. based, right. action adventure based. One is about about the striving for the perfection of the human of the human experience. Yeah. Um, and but having said that, there are, every, Star Wars changed everything, and this was Star Trek's way to stay uh, stay neck and neck with its uh, with its cousin was to show. We can do great special effects too, even okay. though it had its own problems. I think I'm really glad you said this because I was wondering when to bring this thing up, and and you've just made it perfect because I don't think this is about Star Wars. I think spending the money, the budget on having great special effects, totally about Star Wars. Absolutely, yeah. But I think it's really interesting. Three of the movies that we've done together, the three of us, are connected really tightly to this film. One of which is Wrath of Khan, obviously, is the sequel. But the other two are. 
2001 A Space Odyssey yeah. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And what do these three movies have in common? Not Douglas Rock Trumbull. Con, Douglas Trumbull. And I think that this isn't about saying we can do Star Wars. I think this scene is about saying we can do 2001 A Space oh, Odyssey. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because sure. we're looking – I mean you imagine the, the space docking sequence in 2001 where you're spending so much time on the details. Yeah. That's what I think they're trying to do here. Well, then why do you have a problem with it on motion picture, but you don't have a problem with it on 2001? Here's why. Yeah. Oh. You should ask this question. <laughs> as we talked about on 2001. Good counter. Right. Um, uh, as we talked about on 2001, 2001 is totally unique in film and unique for any movie we've ever done on the cinephiles, which is it's an art film. Yeah. It is dealing with abstraction in a way that is not character-based. You, For the first half of the movie, you don't really know characters at all. Yeah. In fact, all the humans going around, first you don't even have humans. And then when you have humans, they're speaking in an almost emotionless way. We don't have character conflict in a traditional sense. And so what you're doing in 2001 is this thing that no other filmmaker has ever done, which is making you watch science for part of it of like, oh, watch how gravity is working. Watch how they use Velcro for this. Watch how they do this. Watch how they do that. Watch how the curved space thing. Watch. That's what we're doing in 2001. That's not what we're doing in Star Trek. What? And so I think they're trying to do that, but without Kubrick's unique genius. I, I, I definitely have all, I've always said that Star Trek, the motion picture, was closer to 2001 than it was to Star Wars. Yeah. But I just want to say, so, you know, you talk about how, how all the films we've done, you know, like, so Rathacon is a sequel, and then, and then uh, you know, 2001, and then Blade Runner, and Close Encounters, they're Blade all... Runner, that was the other okay. one I was trying to remember. Blade Runner, okay. Yeah. So what, the Hard Day's Night didn't have an impact on Star Trek? <laughs> you know, you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> okay, you want me to make a connection? Well, make I a will connection. make a connection. I will too, go. but you go first. The fans. The fans. Is All that right. is that what we said when we did Hard Day's Night is it's the first pop culture youth driven film in a way that was unique that drove the yep. 60s forward. And I will say that Star Trek, the motion picture, actually similar is driven by fans yep. in a way that nothing else has been. And in a way that I'm going to connect that has nothing to do with the way you connected it to when the Beatles played their last live concert in San Francisco on August 29th, 1966, 10 days later. Star Trek premiered. <laughs> now, a new ah! dog. A new dog. Okay, now, John, it's your turn. You're going to have to connect Airplane, the other movie I played, <laughs> oh, we my did, God. to Star Trek The Motion Picture, and go. Well, surely you can't be serious. <laughs> <laughs> I just know that the white parkings, the white lines are only for the party. I don't know what it is, whatever that line is. That's all I know. And I think that's in the Star Trek Motion Picture. There, I think there's white line parking there. As well. <laughs> there you go, yes. Exactly. <laughs> well done, sir. That's where Shatner gets off at the we white We've arrived on the Enterprise. One thing I love, by the way, there are no small parts, only small actors. If you watch the actor that welcomes Kirk aboard, yeah. Kirk kind of ignores him. And it's there, his performance is, I'm meeting a great man and want to talk to him. And then Kirk walks away and he's a little sad. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's just like a totally small moment, but he made it a good thing. Yep. Yeah. So, sir, sir, if you'll follow me, I think I can find my way in. So. And he just you know, left it's, there. It's it's not his enterprise. Yeah. But what I will say about the enterprise is Pugnacious. when Kirk walks in into that uh, docking area, I mean, the enterprise, you've, you finally see, because you didn't see this in the original series, right. you finally see how big the ship really is. Yeah, yeah. Like that docking thing was huge. The rec room where, where Kirk addresses the crew is huge. Yeah. Huge. You know? And the and, engineering room is huge. And right now we head up to the bridge, which is, by the a way, mess. the first shot they shot was this is the first scene, mm. and it is a mess. Total chaos. And he announces pretty quick that I'm going to be the captain and Chekhov is there and Sulu are there. Uhura. And Uhura is there. 
Uh, and they say that Captain Decker doesn't know. Yeah, right, right. But I love when the door opens and oh, Kirk right. sees, what happened? I thought you had the thing problem fixed an hour ago. And they're all like, you know, commotion in here before we're going, sir. You know, I'll get someone there as soon as I can. My people are all tied up right now. It is chaos. And then everyone sees, you know, like Shatner's just looking to the left, looking to the right, just standing there motionless. And even with all the chaos, he's he's got a little smile. Yeah. Like he's on his bridge. Yeah. He's Where on. He belongs. He belongs on the Enterprise. It's so strange to me how many little beats are similar to Wrath of Khan. It's it's mind blowing. Yeah. It's a new crew. Yep. It's a trainee crew. You know, all that kind of stuff. We, we have to go. We're the closest ship in the quadrant yep. to go and handle this stuff. Yeah. I think. And I was going to ask you guys this. Do you think they heard the criticism from one? And of course they cut the budget, but they also soften everything else Absol- oh, to make it feel like this, like, to make people fall back in love with the series again and continue forward. The 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 mo for Wrath of Khan mm-hmm. was to make a Star Trek movie, yeah. was to make a movie that would be fun, that the characters would be much much closer to the ones that we pl- we we loved in TOS, but still very much in middle age and dealing with all those uh, crises. Uh, things to happen when you're middle-aged. And the reason I ask this is because it's very similar to shooting one pilot and shooting a second pilot. And oh, to me, that is Khan, a great point. To me, Khan feels like the second yeah. pilot of the original motion picture. Okay. Let me just pause and just say, Every once bravo. Every I earn my money on this. Fucking bravo, yeah. Johnny. That's what I thought as I was watching this. I was like, this feels like a second pilot. It's a do-over. It's a do-over and a better do-over. And a better one. And a different captain, right? Captain uh-huh. Kirk. Uh-huh. Not physically a different captain, but a different version of Captain Kirk. You than the original are – that is a brilliant, no. a brilliant analogy. That, I think you – that is – so great, and it never occurred to me. And you—that that is really good. <laughs> it's really, and, and and also, if you watch the cage, it is more cerebral and more yes. like less. Can you're not connected to the characters in the same it's way? It's darker. Nice. It's nice dark. Just like motion picture is. Mm-hmm. It's darker. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Wow. Great, great analogy. Yeah. Well, but, thanks, everybody. I'm going to leave now. <laughs> <laughs> See, even when you're sick, you still can bring it. Now, yeah. now there's an extended scene. <laughs> Uh, that's yes. okay, right? So when when Star Trek the Motion Picture aired on ABC TV for the first time in the eighties, it had fifteen minutes of scenes that did not make it into the theatrical version. Yep. So when uh, when Sulu says to Kirk, uh, he's in the engineering room. Decker, he's in the engineering room. He uh, he doesn't know. So so Kirk says, you know, assemble the crew in the re- recreation room, and then that's the end of that scene in the theatrical version. But when most people did not see is the scene continued uh, and Sue says he wanted her back and he got her. Yeah. And this other alien, you know, with like all the prosthetics and I said, what if Captain Decker, he has been part of this ship with its, revi- with its uh, 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 you know, being rebuilt every step of the way. And O'Hara says, Lieutenant or Ensign, whatever, the odds of our coming back from this mission may have just doubled. Yeah. And it's, the confidence in the prime crew, the loyalty to their their guy, their captain, Kirk, was – it's a great moment and they freaking cut it from yeah. the theatrical version. Anyway. It's really, well, what's one, one thing I didn't research and I, you, you're going to know much more about it than me is the different versions. Because I know there's the theatrical version, there's that ABC version and then there's – Director's cut. Director's cut. And yes. I'm not 100 percent sure on what all the differences are. Well, the director's cut that came out in 2001 yeah. is – 
Uh, I would say closer, it, it addresses a lot of the uh, criticisms that people have with the pacing, including you, Steve. <laughs> yes. Uh, the other thing it did was it sort of finished off some of the visual effects that Robert Wise was not able to right. do in, in, the, uh, in the theatrical cut. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that they, that they did, because one of the uh, uh, visual effects uh, people who assisted uh, or who worked on the director's cut for Robert Wise, Darren Docterman is his name. He is a massive fan of the original series. And there were things that, that he put into the director's cut to clearly make it feel like Star Trek. For example, in the theatrical cut of the motion picture, the Enterprise, the bridge of the Enterprise is really quiet. Yeah. You really don't hear anything. But in the original series, the bridge of the Enterprise sounded very busy with the uh, sound effects going on in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, the bridge up. sound. So this guy, Darren Dofferman, he put that bridge sound mm. on the motion picture Enterprise to make it feel like the Enterprise. The problem, the reason why most people haven't seen the director's cut lately is because these revised visual effects were not done in high definition and will not look good on Blu-ray. Mm. So there is actually a campaign going uh, and by campaign, I just mean support going for Paramount to go back and redo the director's cut visual effects in high definition mm. so that the director's cut can make it onto HD, Blu-ray, 4K, you name it. Why not? Because they did that with the series, the original series. They went yeah. back and high def the hell out I of the love, original series. I love the new effects. Me too. A lot Me of people too. don't. But I, I mean, I thought the, the redone visual effects. Yeah, I think they did a good job. They yeah. did a great job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a couple of episodes that actually improve with those new visual effects. Like remember Tomorrow's Yesterday where they go back to Earth, they pick up the Air Force captain. Yeah. The original effects for that, no, no disrespect to, to those who the, – the people who worked on it. But the yeah, redone no visual yeah. effects I thought were just elevated. But well, and the smart thing they did is they didn't – try to make it they try to keep it within the world of Star Trek of the 1960s they didn't try to make it crazy right like the force uh, uh, you know a new hope uh, yeah. what the yeah. Lucas did in Star Wars episode 4 I mean it yeah he ruined it but they they what they did with the visual effects, you know, as uh, Mike and Denise Akuda, Dave Rossi, you know, they spearheaded the whole thing uh, with the revised visual effects in 2007, and they made the visual effects complement the interior scenes. Mm. So, the, if there were new visual effects done, most of the time they were just on the outside, you know, seeing the Enterprise, seeing the planet, you know, seeing the right. the Enterprise orbit the actual planet Earth in tomorrow's yesterday was a beautiful thing. But anyway, in regards to all the different versions of uh, the motion picture, you know, the one I, I do defer back to uh, is is the one that we grew up with. Yeah. You know, that's that's the one. Right. I mean, I I do want to see the director's cut redone for HD. But I mean, you know, listen, this is the movie that I loved. Of course. So we're down in engineering, which has once again received a huge upgrade in terms of its scale yeah. and design. And now we get to meet Captain Decker. Hmm. Captain Decker. This is never made clear in the film, but Captain Decker, Will Decker, is the son of Commodore Matt Decker from the original series episode, The Doomsday Machine. Oh, wow. The crazy Captain right. Ahab, like Captain of the Constellation, right. who sacrificed himself to defeat the, the planet killer. Yeah. Another giant thing heading towards Earth. Another huh. giant thing heading towards Earth. I think it's actually heading towards the, Ri the Rigel system. Oh, the Rigel system. But it was still a busy part of the galaxy. <laughs> I wish. I, and it's, it's so interesting that you have this Decker character, this Will Decker <laughs> character who is 
supposed to be in phase two, partially yeah. because they thought Shatner might get too expensive and they wanted to be able to fire him for season two of phase two, whatever that was going to be. And now he ends up and then he and this backstory of him being the son of Commodore Decker, and I, w- I wish they'd given it to us. I think that would have been a great. Why they never address that? Like even just a, like a, some subtle reference, yeah, a hint to it or something. So as if to say, like like in Wrath of Khan, when Kirk is telling Carol Marcus, and he says, "The man I, I the man out there I haven't seen in fifteen years is yeah. trying to kill me." Like that's all you need to know about Space Seed, right? And to just sort of say something alluding to his father. Uh, and the constellation, that would have been a great way for to establish uh, Will Decker's added yeah. resentment of Kirk, even after he took the Enterprise away from him. Well, That's a great point. Kirk, who takes the constellation away from Commodore Decker, and Decker, who dies fighting this thing, yeah. who, who honestly went kind of crazy and obscene and obsessed about defeating this thing, and now we have Kirk, who's obsessed about. According to McCoy, about doing this thing, and it's like, oh, there was some meat in there we could have gotten into, but we don't get into it. Well. I think I think it's a great point both you make, but I also think Collins is playing that. When Kirk mm. tells him, Collins immediately turns. It isn't shock of like, no, he goes, no, you told me in the past. So you – like there's there's levels that Collins is playing. Now, do I know Stephen had that in his mind when he was doing it? I don't. But – there's an unusual amount of anger that he has towards Kirk about this situation. I think it's a really good scene that yes, we have. I think so too. I, I think, first of all, Kirk is total dick in the way he handles he is this. Absolutely. True. He just goes, I'm taking over. Yeah. And he doesn't he doesn't soften it in any way. Right. And you're right, Collins comes right back at him. It's like, no, you said I remember when you recommended me for this command. You told me how envious you were and how much you hoped you'd find a way to get a starship command again. Well, sir. It looks like you found a way. Yeah, he yeah. said. They say you always say you'll do anything to get the Enterprise back. Well, looks like you found a way, mm-hmm. fucker. And he <laughs> also plants another thing that's really important, which is you don't know this ship. Yeah, and it's true. He yeah. doesn't know the ship. Yep. He doesn't know the Enterprise. This is he, great writing. Yeah, it is. Not make I Kirk agree. necessarily perfect, the hero, and perfect. Yes, mm-hmm. the fact you have to give him flaws. And flaws that are logical. And Deckard is never, ever shown as a negative or villainous person the entire time. So that when his sacrifice happens at the end, it's even more emotional. But the thing about about Kirk not being perfect, about him not having the right answers, that is something that made the character so endearing and appealing in the original series. Like, you know, he thought he was doing the right thing in something like a devil in the dark with going after the hoarder to kill it until he found out that it was a mother. He's like, oh, I was wrong. You know, same thing in Metamorphosis. He wanted to kill the companion so we could get Commissioner Heifer back to the Enterprise. And then he hears her voice and realizes it's a lover. He goes, oh, okay, I was wrong. You know, that's part of That's why Star Star Trek, from the from the original show in all its very best forms, has always been for the striving of the perfection right. of the human race, and it never quite gets there. Well, this is this is my big objection to later Gene Roddenberry is that when Star Trek is bad and it's bad, you know, a fair amount, yeah. is when they say we have perfected it. You know, getting a Wesley Crusher, you know, speech about why would people ever want to do drugs? Right. You know, it's just like, Ugh. Oh, oh, or no, like no, they, in our century, we've we never have the need <coughs> for greed or anger or violence. It's like, oh, shut up. You know, like what's good is the strive. It's just what you said. It's yeah. striving. You know, the first two seasons of the Next Generation, not the best, but they're terrible. Season three, 
Oh, it hits it. That was when Next Generation hit its stride and stayed that way for the next five years. Still a Kirk man. No, me too. No, me too. Me too. No. I like it. Me too. Kirk. Um, <laughs> you go ruminate somewhere else. <laughs> Picard. <laughs> I'm still going to watch it. T. Earl Grey. Yeah. Um, you know, no, I love Picard. I'm you didn't see joking. Kirk become a Borg. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Kirk just became like a Native American. No, he, became a Romulan. <laughs> he became a Native American. He became a, a Romulan. Woman. He became a gangster. A woman. He became a Roman. Come on. He became. He, Kirk sure. can do anything. Fair enough. And then it was Evil Kirk. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, All right. Evil Kirk, <laughs> Android right. Kirk. Android Kirk. Um, <laughs> uh, one other thing is that he also says, okay, you're a commander now, temporary demotion. It's like, yeah, yeah oh. it's like, oh, man. It's still have to insult. No, it's pretty rough. Uh, and then just, and so Stephen Collins goes off, and now we have a big flash of fire or something, and there's some issue with the transporter, which sucks because they're about to beam some people aboard. Transporter, do not engage. It's too late. They're beaming now. This, I remember watching this next scene, uh, the scene where, where uh, Commander Sonak. Uh, Who we just had seen yeah. with Kirk. And he was beaming aboard the Enterprise. And the Enterprise transporters were not ready to engage him. And this scene, by the way, this movie was rated G Get when it, it first came out. In my notes out. right here at yeah. this moment. Yeah. yeah. Rated G. Rated G when this came out. And you were showing like not just a death but an agonizing death. That that scream yeah. that they let out on the on the transporter platform was – it's still – I hear it in my head. Oh, yeah. it's, it's excruciating. It's very disturbing. I skipped it when we watched it with my son. I was oh. like this is a disturb- – because it is, it is freaky. Like the idea that your pattern doesn't come together right and you arrive as some screaming mutant blob yeah. of flesh. Well, you hear that You hear that guy. He's, yeah. Well, we got back. Didn't live long, thank God. Fortunately. 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 Right. Is the same scream when uh, McCoy shoots that thing coming out of Chekhov's ear? Mm. Is that the same scream uh, sound? It's a similar uh, pitch. Because it sounds. It's, it sounds very similar to someone yeah. shoots a steady eel. Yeah. Uh, it's I could, it could be, but Good. I mean, it's still like I mean, when I was watching, especially when it when I finally got the motion picture on VHS, and I think 1981, um, and I was watching it over and over again. I I, I was always disturbed yeah. by that scene. It's really disturbing. And it's sad watching it this time. Yeah. And and sad. You know, Very sad. It's dark. The 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 they're not ready to go out and fight future. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. they're or or whatever this thing is. The you know the Kirk doesn't know his way around. I mean, he's He's uh, in the transporter trying to help Rand, Gracely Whitney. I was just going to say. You know, Gracely Whitney, who we haven't seen since her walk on last appearance in the original series, which is which was uh, The Conscience of the King, mm. uh, was the last time oh, we yeah. saw Yeoman Rand. And uh, it's a sad moment. And then Kirk's trying to find his way to Turbo Shaft 8. Mm. And the uh, ensign says, oh, it's back that way, sir. Like, don't you know your way around the Enterprise? Is it the same Ensign who wanted to talk to him? Oh, I don't know. No, it was a woman. Okay, okay. It was a woman, yeah. Um, And and now we go, as you alluded to, to the rec room, and we see a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Like, we've we've always heard there were Uh, 400 people in the Enterprise. Mm. Before that, uh, Kirk sees Decker. We have to replace Commander Sonak. I'd still like a Vulcan there, possible. None available, Captain. In fact, there's no one who's fully rated on this design. You are, Mr. Decker. I'm afraid you're going to have to double as science officer. Poor guy. He yeah. just got he just got a raw deal. He really did. <laughs> um, it, and apparently, a lot of the people playing the crew in the rec room are a bunch of Star Trek fans. <laughs> a bunch of people from the conventions nice. and stuff, and they got their moment on screen, which is pretty cool. From and we Bijo sh- Trimble. What? Bijo Trimble. 
No. Mm. Bijo Trimble, for those of you who don't know her, Bijo Trimble is the woman who, along with her husband, John, launched the letter writing campaign oh, wow. that saved Star Trek, the original series, to go into its third season. And from there, everything else. So Bijo Trimble and John Trimble were among the extras in the rec room scene with the crew. And uh, and without without her her saving the show with the letter writing campaign, which was groundbreaking at the time, that that maybe Star Trek wouldn't have gone into wow. syndication. Wow. So good she was there. Yeah. And they show the video of the Klingon cruisers getting destroyed. And Kirk says, like, this thing is coming towards Earth and we got to go stop it. We're the only starship around. And then if that's not enough, we got a call from Epsilon 9 that and they put that on the view screen and we watched them get wiped out. The, the fact that you have the whole crew is now seeing what they're up against. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're seeing the disintegration of, uh, of Epsilon 9. Yeah. And then that, that last shot that holds on, on v, you know, V'ger, I don't know how they got the shot of the space well, this station. Is, <laughs> this is the, the great thing about it. It's like, how, do, how are we actually filming yeah, all space cameras, how, man? Wait, we could see V'ger. Can we just zoom in to the center and yeah. see what's going on there? I'm sure Elon uh, Musk's so, generation is So, there. you know, Kirk says, uh, you know, pre-launch countdown will commence, commence uh, shortly. And uh, so that, but then we're on the bridge again. Only this time, up to this point, we've only seen Kirk wearing his white admiral shirt with his gold insignia pin and the braiding on his uh, wrists of his uniform signaled that he was an admiral because it was like four bars Mm. on his wrists. So now when we cut back to the bridge of the Enterprise, Kirk is wearing all blue and the, the, the insignia is now a patch sewn on his uniform and the braiding on his uh, on his arms by his wrists just like they were in the original series show the three bars the middle bar is broken uh, and that is signaling that he has been uh, ranked now as Captain Kirk wow what are the weird things you have to do in a movie you're going to have your costume people and prop people go how do what are our ranks yeah. and how do we do insignia like you got to figure out all that stuff oh yeah and and I, I didn't know that one at all that's really cool Lieutenant Ilya, reporting for duty, sir. Welcome aboard, Lieutenant. Lieutenant Ilya, when she walks on the bridge, Uhura turns around to Captain Kirk and goes, oh, and she's Delton, yes. Captain. And then the door opens. And, and all the dudes this, go, huh? Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and she is gorgeous and bald. Yeah. The only person that she – and she's very, like, emotionless. Until she sees Decker, yeah. with whom she has had a relationship with. And she tells uh, Captain Kirk, my oath of celibacy is on record, Captain. I thought it was brilliant. Wow. It's right? A, it's a thing where I kind of went, this is where I wish we had phase two because i like, well, what does it mean to be a Delton? And right. wouldn't that – that's a thing to explore in a series. That would be, what does that mean to have a but, oath of celibacy? And obviously word has traveled around the space – Around uh, around the Starfleet of Kirk's promiscuity. Oh, so oh. She, she made it very clear. My yeah. old celebrity. Yeah, she's on like record. Not calm down. Th- don't even think about. Don't it. even. Well, think clearly, about Deltons it. have a certain effect on men. It seems yeah. that's the implication, yeah. or that's the implication that I get. No surprise. Um, <laughs> well, well, that scene also is extended. Mm. Now, oh. in the in the uh, the theatrical version, you, you you see that that scene play out, and then. Kirk says to Sulu, 
when Ivelia sits down at the navigation station, he says, oh, you know, would you, would you help the uh, lieutenant? And Sulu is all, you know, well, sort of uh, flummoxed because he's, uh, you know, like now. really into her. He's like yeah. checking her out and, you know, he's like, you know, falling over himself trying to help her. Uh, it pushes the wrong button on the navigation station. It may, makes a loud noise. Uh, you know, there are really some, <laughs> I got to tell you, and I think about it, some of the more, uh, some of the finer emotional moments were deleted from the theatrical mm. cut. Yeah, goes to show you. And we hear that the transporters have been fixed, and there is a dude that will not get on the transporter. Oh, I'll see to it that he beams up. (laughs) And of course, all of us know who this is going to be. And we go down to the transporter room, and as we said, we get McCoy with the beard, which I love, and he is pissed off. And yes. Now, when uh, in another deleted moment, before we see the transporter beam McCoy aboard, we see Kirk arrive in the transporter room after another another team has arrived on the Enterprise, and Kirk says, "What's going on down there?" And the uh, the uh, ensign lieutenant woman she says to him, "I don't know." He said something about not wanting to have his atoms scattered throughout the universe. <laughs> right. And Kirk goes, "Oh, okay." I know. I know this, you know. And then, of course, yeah. One of the criticisms of this film has been that it doesn't have the sense of humor that. That Star Trek, mm. I mean, even like City on the Edge of Forever, which is a very heavy episode, is really funny. Right. And McCoy brings the humor. He's the one character that sort of com- – and he comes in full on. Your revered Admiral Nagura invoked a little-known, seldom-used reserve activation clause. In simpler language, Captain, they drafted me. And we have this great moment that I think you said before, which is he says, I need you, damn it, Bones. Mm. I need you. I need you. Damn it, Bones. I need you. Badly. I would have cut badly. No. As an editor. Hmm. So here's a basic editing rule, in my opinion. This is a Steve rule. Is if you have two moments that do the same thing, keep the one that's better. Mm. So his, I need you. I need you. The I need you is great. The yeah. second I need you second is fantastic. Need, yeah. The badly, which is reiterating the same point as I need you, actually is – it's kind of when Shatner goes a little too far mm-hmm. and it's too much and it's like, no, no, cut it after the second I need you. It would have been stronger. But isn't that the point? He's so desperate. He's going too far. He's pushing too past the line. Isn't that the point to undercut his Well, character? that might be the w- reason why you would not edit it. You would Maybe. leave it the way it was. I don't know. And I would take it out. <laughs> okay, fair, <laughs> fair. It's fascinating the way he comes on there because it's also like Bones is never the most – how can I say this correctly? Bones isn't the most like willing to battle leadership, right? He he takes the orders from Kirk. He'll, he'll push back a little bit. But this is the most he pushes back. Like he's just going off and he's mad. And when he finds out that it's Kirk – who took him off yeah. and that that invoked that little known clause of voluntary service or whatever, yeah. he is pissed. He is legitimately pissed at Kirk. And it takes Kirk going the, I need you, the desperate nature yeah. of it all. And he even does the hand thing like right. two or three times, which I wonder if that was Shatner doing this thing and trying to force um, uh, to force Kelly to shake his hand quicker and to force like, Nah, man, I'm holding out till the yeah. right moment. You can do this all you want. And, and he, he does. Hand, when he takes the hand, hand it's powerful. It's, it's powerful. But you see the desperation yep. in Kirk. There's a mission to come aboard. Right. There's a there's a feeling there where he's he's mad right now. It's funny to me how often in films we get to put the band back together. Yeah. And it's so always really satisfying when we put the band back together. Mm-hmm. So McCoy shaking Kirk's hand in this moment, we go, Yes. Yeah. 
feels good. When McCoy walks out of that scene, they probably redesigned the whole sick bay too. Yeah, I know. I know engineers, engineers they love to change things. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Which we needed. Like we're thirty some thirty forty minutes into the movie. Yeah. Like we needed someone. We need McCoy to come in and make a joke. Even the bear joke is great. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. I, I need someone questioning every uh, every, every diagnosis, diagnosis I make. With yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, which he's talking about uh, Chapel. Who's Chapel. Now, yeah. Who's yeah. Chapel. Yeah. He's a um, doctor now. Uh, one other thing is he says a line that is so important in Star Trek, which is Kirk's talking about this big thing hurtling towards Earth. And he says, why is any object we don't understand always called a thing? That is as Star Trek a line as you could possibly get. Yeah, that's true. That is very, very much like a Star Trek line. And and as we have just a perfect Star Trek line, I think it's time to pause for a moment to hear from our sponsors. Yeah. So welcome back. And now it is time to launch the Enterprise. Finally, we get to see the Enterprise in motion. Yeah. And I love this scene, the buildup to it. Yeah. Great. The buildup with the music and the lights, the lights. Yeah. and you know, Kirk is, is on the bridge in the command and he's giving orders. Thrust us ahead, Mr. Sue. Take us out. You know, he's just like, he's back in the zone. Mm-hmm. He's back in his element. He's in the chair and then the lights, you know, come up them. one by one. You know, they come up on the the nacelle, and then you see the light light up the words NCC 1701 USS Enterprise. Yeah. Which, by the way, seeing the primary hull, the top of the primary hull that says NCC 1701 USS Enterprise. When I saw Star Trek 2009, mm. and Kirk and McCoy are on the shuttle. And McCoy looks out the window and goes, oh, my, look at that. And Kirk leans over his shoulder to look through the window. And you see the, the JJ version of yeah. the Enterprise. But then you go to the, the top of the primary hole and you see the words, you know, you see NCC-1701 USS Enterprise. You know, when that movie came out in 2009 and they showed that scene, I got so emotional. <laughs> like, oh, it's the Enterprise. It's the Enterprise. I got so emotional. You know what's funny is uh, – I hadn't thought until you just said this – is that in a weird way, the 11-year-old Steve watching Star Trek The Motion Picture mm-hmm. and the – so it's 2009. So it's the 41-year-old Steve watching J.J. Abrams' Star Trek mm-hmm. had the same reaction. Mm. That emotional yeah. – like here's this thing that I love that I thought was dead in yeah, a way. never going to see it again. And, and now it's being done in this huge yeah. way. And it just – I mean the the, the and we're, we're going to do this movie. I, oh. We're definitely oh, yeah. going to do 2009. <laughs> yeah. But I will say right now, the moment that she named him Jim in that opening sequence of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, I was – Falling. Wow. I oh, mean, that just... opening scene. Talk about it. Now, that's a yeah. teaser. Okay, that was oh, yeah. a teaser like yeah. they did in the original series. Yeah. The first 10 minutes of, of Star Trek 2009 is grand cinema. Oh, yeah. It's excellent. Absolutely. But we are not in Star Trek 2009. Yeah. We are watching the motion picture <laughs> Enterprise say, go off. And I love that we see it leave the Earth and we see it go past Jupiter. It's just so yeah. kind of cool. We're seeing it in ways we've never seen it before. But but uh, you know they're they're sort of cutting the ties with the space dock and they're cutting the ties with Earth and then Kirk just sits there he looks at the view screen 
He goes, take us out. And then you see the Enterprise from every different angle, the uh, from the front, you know, the, the, the stationary uh, sort of camera, you know, and the Enterprise is coming directly at you and the primary hole is above you and it's so big and, and, and it just uh, – uh, it's just – and that the music is great. Oh, I just love that scene. Ah, oh, so awesome. You, you're going to hate me for this, but it's essentially an erection. <laughs> That's what it is. John, I hate, I hate you for so many other things. <laughs> Not for it's that. It's a slow – you know? Yeah, yeah. People it, flipping listen. around, people doing all those things that they do. It's basically an erection. <laughs> people flipping around like they do when they have erections. Well, well <laughs> woo! We're going to have sex. <laughs> So I'm just sorry. Saying, which makes <laughs> just take me a moment to recover from this <laughs> I mean, particular line. It makes sense. Captain's log, stardate seven four one two point six, one point eight hours from launch. In order to intercept the intruder at the earliest possible time, we must now risk engaging warp drive while still within the solar system. Bone shows up now. Sadly, in my mind, shaved. Yeah. Um, He's com- also now wearing a blue uniform. Complaining sure. about his facilities, which he says seems like you know working in a computer. Mm-hmm. Goddamn computer center. <laughs> and Kirk wants to go to warp. And Decker says, "No, no, no, no. We get with these. They've never gone to warp. We need to do a simulation." Scotty says, "We need to do a simulation." Kirk says, "I want we need warp, warp speed, speed now." Now. And then McCoy says, "Jim, you're pushing." Your people know their jobs. By the way, this is why Jim needs bones. Right. And he and, knows it. He's smart enough to know it. And moments like that, even though there was a lot of tension between Kirk and McCoy in the motion picture, if you think back to the original series. Yeah. There was a lot of tension between Kirk and McCoy in the original series. Remember yeah. the Corbomite maneuver when yeah. when McCoy calls Kirk out for giving Bailey a hard time and he goes, anytime you can bluff me, doctor, or that scene, the scene, okay, in a private little war in the cave after Kirk has made the decision to arm the hill people with flintlocks and he's showing them how to use them, how to aim the gun and fire. And McCoy pulls him aside and says, what the hell are you yeah, doing? Right. And you know, you're know, you you're you're condemning these people to a war that will never end. And he, McCoy, uh, Kirk slams down his fist and goes, all right, doctor. You know, like that's a moment, you know, even though I don't like to see them fighting, but yeah. it was something that happened a but lot they, of the original but, show. Characters have to have conflict. Mm-hmm. It's basic to drama. Again, this is my objection to some of the Gene Roddenberry later years that we've got it all figured out and we're all – it's like, no, they have to have conflict. Kirk, McCoy and and Spock too, they all want the same goal but they argue about how to achieve that goal. Yeah. If you don't have the arguing about how to achieve the goal, the show has no drama. The drama – yes, the drama is coming from the outside force that is creating a plot that we have to struggle against. But the drama is also internally. It's Kirk and Decker. It's Kirk and McCoy. Right. It's That's that's how it's, – it's, it's our feelings about Spock. That's what drives the thing forward. It could be a basic interpretation, but isn't that the three levels, the id, the superego, and, and the, the – the, 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 the ego and the superego. Yeah, yeah. that's the Absolutely. three of them. Yeah. That's McCoy. Insane. Well, they talk Kirk about pathos, logos. And ethos, yeah. you know that that these are these these classic f- kind of poles that right. they that they that they use. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in this case, Kirk does not listen to McCoy. No. And we go, let's go to warp speed. Yeah, Scotty basically saying, you know, we uh, it's put on a simulator cabinet. Can't guarantee you warp drive, Mister Scott. Yeah. <laughs> and this is definitely his hubris. Yeah. He is not eased into this role again. He has leapt into it and now he leaps into warp speed. We get a really cool warp effect yeah. for me in 1979 today. Wow. 
My son said, that's stupid looking. Uh, and I, you know, was angry with him. Uh, no. Uh, yeah. How dare you? Uh, start no, that, that, that was a great, like, uh, that was like great listen, job. like, uh, the funny thing is that the action in Star Trek, the motion picture, when it happens, doesn't really happen when you think it's going to happen. Yeah. It happens around those moments uh, or before them, actually, you know, with the transporter and now the wormhole sequence. Because what's going to happen – I love how they do it too is that Kirk, confident that he made the right decision, turns away from the view screen and says something to Mr. Decker as we see behind him all hell break loose. Yeah. Mr. Decker. Emergency alert. Emergency alert. Emergency alert. Wormhole. Apparently, this took weeks to film because they're shooting at all different film speeds. They're they're shooting at regular speed, this slow motion, super slow motion. And then they're doing all these optical effects. It was really, really hard to put it all together and get everything to to work. And we're sort of slowing down in time and that we've entered a wormhole and that there's an object ahead of them that they're going to crash into in like 20 seconds. An asteroid, yeah. And and they can't control the helm. They can't shut down the engines. And Kirk says, Mr. Chekhov, stand by our phasers. And then Decker. Belay that order. No, belay that phaser order. (laughs) It's not easy to. Photon torpedoes. And Kirk, frankly, looks kind of deer in the headlights. Frank is, uh, Kirk is pissed. Yeah. Kirk is pissed. He's scared. He's undercutting his authority, too, in front of the whole crew. But he, I think it's, it's, he is pissed, but I think he realizes he doesn't know what the hell's going on. Right. That's fair, too. Absolutely. Because his hubris is so out of control right now. One other thing, by the way. They actually have seatbelts in those chairs. <laughs> it's not seatbelts, but he like kind of folds some things yeah. over. Over his nervous legs. But yeah. you also have a whole bunch of people that are just standing up. The wormhole is broken. The Enterprise slows down. I love down. that it, it goes immediately out of it. Yeah. It right. doesn't ease out of it. It's just boom, we're out. And I'm glad we didn't get their faces coming out of clouds either. Uh, like, oh. we do, like we do in, in four. But the, the, oh, uh, that's the worst. <laughs> I know. The worst. That. Mr. Decker, I'd like to see you in my quarters. Mind if I tag along, Captain? And we end up at Kirk's quarters, and he immediately is asking why his phaser order was countermanded. It's because the phasers are tied to the engines, and with the engines going haywire, they wouldn't have worked. And I I love Shatner handles the, you acted properly, of course. He does? Yeah. Thank it's, you, a, it's a great moment. It's a good moment. He goes, he goes, you acted properly, of course. And he goes, thank you, sir. And he goes, you saved the ship. And no, no, goes, he says, I'm sorry if I embarrassed you. Right, yeah, I'm sorry if I'm embarrassed you. You saved the ship. I'm aware of that, Captain. Yeah. Well, stop competing with me, Decker. <laughs> That's yeah. what he says, yeah. which is not – Decker's not competing with him. It's yeah. all in Kirk's head. Well, Decker is – look, Decker – I don't think so. I don't think he's competing with him. <laughs> yeah. But I, when you say, I'm sorry if I embarrassed you, sir, that is a dig. Of course. I think he's legitimately sorry he embarrassed him. Yeah, but you don't say, I'm sorry if I embarrassed you. Because if I say it, because that that is is you mean that implies that you think the other person was embarrassed. Yes, you are or, or, or pointing that, out their, isn't their a great, weakness of character. That's fair, and but isn't a great captain supposed to read that in another person? Sure, I'm saying that Decker is fucking with Kirk oh, on some level. I don't think so. Absolutely. Okay, fair enough. Um, it's interesting. I never thought of it as a dig. Yeah, but but the way that well, he says, "I'm aware of that, sir." Yeah, that's a dig. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think dig. that's the confidence of a captain. 
but then you know, I get your points. I get De- your points. Decker calls him out and says, "You haven't locked a single star hour in two and a half years." Yeah. That plus your unfamiliarity with the Enterprise puts this mission at great risk. Yeah. And uh, you know, Kirk goes, oh, "Well, I trust you'll uh, nursemate me in these uh, instances." Yes, sir. I'll do that. Thank you. Get back to work. <laughs> he tosses him out. And and what happens just as he leaves is McCoy says, "You may be right, Jim." And that's why I don't think he's a bad guy here. Decker? He's right. Oh, everything I, he's saying oh, is right. I totally agree. But, but right. I don't think he's doing it in a dick way. I think he's saying to him, "You came onto my ship. You thought you could do things, and you almost killed the entire fucking crew because you don't have any concept of what you're doing." I'm trying to address you as my superior in a respectful way, but I'm not going to pull back any punches and stay within the framework. I, no, I agree respect. with that. So I don't think he's being a dick. I think he's being like, I'm uh, sorry I embarrassed you. You need to wake the fuck up. This is really happening. I think both things are true. Okay. <laughs> That's what I think. Um, uh, we're in the hallway with Decker and Ilya. Was it difficult? No more than I expected. About as difficult as seeing you again. I'm sorry. That you left Delta for? Or that you didn't even say goodbye? If I had seen you again, would you have been able to say it? No. So, Will Decker and Ilea are Will Riker and Troy. Yes, that's right. Ooh, that's right. This is this is the okay. Gene Roddenberry characters created for Phase Two. That's a great that point. weren't used in Phase Two. Okay. That he essentially used. They have a past relationship. Right. She's not Delton. She's Betazoid, but she's still emotional and a different. You know, clearly a different sure. kind of thing. And what is going to be their current relationship? That's 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 where that all comes from. Okay, William T. Riker, Will Riker. Yeah, and now we're back with Kirk and McCoy. I, I'm very curious. Again, this is where the editing is interesting. Is he said he may be right, and then we cut out of the scene. Now we cut back in. Yeah. I wonder if they originally had it play as one scene with him and McCoy, and then they decided to intercut it. Um, and I'd just be curious to know how it is in the original script. And uh, Kirk says, "Make your point." The point, Captain, is that it's you who's competing. You ram getting this command on Starfleet's throat. You've used this emergency to get the Enterprise back. And he's, uh, he basically calls him out for being so obsessed with getting command back to the Enterprise, it's clouded his judgment. Okay. Yeah. Do you, when he says it's an obsession, do you hear in your head Kirk saying, obsessed? Obsessed. Oh, from the uh, from obsession. series, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. But that I see that scene. I see that exact same scene same play thing. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. McCoy calls him out. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, McCoy says in that episode, you know, the biggest monster of all, guilt. Yeah. Make your point, Doctor. Yeah. Yeah. See, I love that. I love when he, McCoy confronts Kirk. Yeah, I love absolutely. when he does that. Absolutely, because and, and Kirk, rightly, this what this is the great thing about Kirk is he need he knows he needs McCoy. Yeah, he doesn't like the guy that reigns him in, you know, all the time, and he's irritated with him. But he, but he needs, knows he's right. But he well, and he needs someone to challenge his own perceptions, right, right. even if he goes ahead and does the thing anyway. Yeah, because. I mean, Decker probably would, but Sulu's never going to challenge Kirk. Well, he's not you written know. that way. Yeah. <laughs> Sulu would love to challenge sure. Kirk, let me oh, tell you. Oh, challenge I'm him sure. with a rapier. Sure that not. goes off the set as well. <laughs> um, I, I think McCoy re- reigns him in and Spock inspires. Yeah. Like, right? Uh, they both do – they both serve their purposes. I, I just love their their, their dynamic. Because yeah. oh, you yeah. got the dynamic between Kirk and Spock, the dynamic between Kirk and McCoy, the dynamic between McCoy and Spock, and then you got the dynamic between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a – like it really is just so perfect. Just the way that they all just 
complement each other. I think one of the interesting differences between original series Star Trek and all the other versions is that original series had Kirk as number one and then the big three or it was Kirk and then it's Kirk and Spock and then it's Kirk and Spock and McCoy. And then it's everybody else is small. Mm. Whereas in Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and all the other shows, they tried to equally service. They tried to make be a, more of an ensemble. Yeah, there'd right. be a Worf episode. There's going to be obviously a Data yeah. episode, but there's going to be a Troy episode. There's going to be – and the same in all the other series. Whereas there's never a Chekhov episode. There's never an Uhura episode. There's never a Scott – there's ones where Scotty has more to do. There's, there's, more, there's a couple of Sulu episodes though, aren't there? Well, there's, well, there's, 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 a, never there's a couple of Chekhov. Uh, well, I mean unfortunately the Chekhov episodes uh, where he really you know got to stand out. Yeah. You know, when you look Space at like – Space and, uh, and The Way uh, of yeah, the Gun. Yeah, The Way to Eden. Yeah. But also you know in uh, Spectre of the Gun. Of the gun. You know, right. he had a big a couple but, of big but scenes. But it's still a Kirk episode. It's still Kirk. Mm-hmm. Kirk, Spock, right. and McCoy are still the leads. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's just that Chekhov has thirty percent more to do than he normally does. But this is, you know, but this is why Takai is so mad. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. It seems to me there is a lot of reasons to be mad at Shatner. I guess. But he's so good at this. I, so good. You know, I I I love Shatner. Yeah. I love the guy. I I think, you know, <laughs> Kirk, was such was I say was. What I meant to say is Kirk is such a big role model in my life. Mm. You know, I, I grew up with a really tight family, but Kirk was my hero. Yeah. You know, I was not a totally. sports guy. Kirk was, you know, my, my brother and my father, they had all these like sports people that they loved talking about. Yeah. I would talk about Captain Kirk. I wanted to be Captain Kirk. I, I learned how to woo women because of the way Kirk looked and talked to, you know, worlds may change, galaxies disintegrate, but a woman always remains a woman. I have used that line before. <laughs> I, I'm sure to great effect. To great effect. <laughs> well, and right now we get a call from the bridge that a shuttle wants to – it wants to lock on and it's got grade one security and – of course, we know what's about to happen. And there's some there's some great about being ahead of the movie because we 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 saw Spock a long time ago. Right. You know, it has been a long and Bones has showed up, so now it's like it's Spock. And right. we lost our science officer. We lost so our science we officer. Yeah, we, need, we, we have an opening. Yeah. yeah, we have a job opening. The shots of the shuttle are very cool, by the way. And, and so the way it's, the music. Yeah, and the music's great, and the way it separates and it flips around, and in what's Spock. And but it's great. It's great when 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 the shuttle flips around and then the you know uh, Chekhov is standing there because in 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 the motion picture he was a security chief, yeah. so he's standing there you know looking very stern. And then the door opens and you hear this this beautiful little score and Spock walks in and he goes, uh, "Permission to come aboard, sir." Grant it, sir. Grant. And he walks away. He goes, yeah. "Tid." <laughs> I love Mr. Spock. I really do. And and there's some there's a great I think what this movie does really really well is there's a great feeling of of Nimoy arriving. Uh-huh. And we just had a great scene where Bones was really being Bones and Kirk was being Kirk and it felt right and here comes Spock and it's not that way. And I think that's really cool is that it sets you up like hey the the teams the bands together. But it's, what's great about it is uh, at least two-thirds of them are happy to see the other person. Yeah, yeah. You know, when when Spock walks on the bridge and Sulu goes, why? It's it's Mr. And then Kirk spins around and he, the look on his face, you know, his eyes, but he goes, Spock. And then he just stands up and he goes, Spock. Yeah. Like, like you f- – th- that scene, Shatner was just so spot on, perfect. He goes, Spock. And he just gets up and he goes – 
Spock, yeah. you're on the bridge of the Enterprise. And then McCoy and Chapel walk in and he goes, Mr. Spock. Well, so help me. I'm actually pleased to see you. And a perfect McCoy introduction uh, for Spock again. He says, you know, just says to Decker, hey, can I borrow your track quarter? Yeah, yeah, sure. Here you go. And uh, Spock is walking away and Kirk goes, Spock, welcome aboard. Mm -hmm. And Spock just doesn't even turn all the way around. He just keeps walking forward. McCoy and Kirk look at each other, go, something's up. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was just thinking as you were talking about McCoy's relationship to Spock. I am sure all of us on one way or another, whether it's with longtime friends or with family, have those people in your lives that regularly irritate you. Mm. And yet there's a certain point where after 10, 15 years or something, they're family, even though they piss you off. And I think McCoy, in the moment that he says, I'm I'm really glad to see you, is him like acknowledging this person that irritates the crap out of me, I love. And then Spock walking away yeah. is so brutal in that moment. I've never bought the McCoy hated Spock. No, no, I don't think I think he loves it. They argue I, a lot. I wonder if I <laughs> can say this correctly. He respects Kirk, but I think he thinks Spock is his intellectual equal. And I think there's the difference. I think that's why McCoy loves to battle with Spock, because they both approach each other in that way. I think they both think they're intellectual equals. Him rule by passion, him rule by logic. Well, well, but his intelligence is combined with his passion. You know, McCoy and Spock are are the yin and yang. Yes. You have just such a fundamentally emotional person yeah. who who is so human. And then you have someone who is so cool, calm and collected and 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 you know puts logic at least, at least uh, on on the for, uh, appearances, puts yeah. logic above everything else, and they really are like oil and vinegar. But uh, at the same time, they're also like chocolate and peanut butter. You yeah. Know? Whereas Kirk, <laughs> you know, because it does, it goes well together. I salad Whereas Kirk, I mean, you know, <laughs> the the intellectual uh, connection between Kirk and Spock, and they just complete each other's sentences. By the second season, yeah. it was so great that they would like finish each other's sentences. But then, you know, with Kirk and McCoy, it's different because, you know, Kirk uh, is also very emotional, but McCoy kind of, yeah. kind of, you know, slaps him and says, you know, get a, get a hold of yourself. Kirk is all ego, yep. right? And he's, of course, he's smart. He's a great captain. He's, sure. He figures it out every single time, of course. But I think neither McCoy nor Spock is ego-driven. They're both... Right. Driven by their own right. logic, in whether positive or negative, whether passionate or not, they're driven by their logic. Kirk is the ego; it must go forward. But these right. two, which is why I think when he puts his hand to give him the memories at the end of Khan, yeah. it isn't convenient just because McCoy's there. It's because he knows he also sees McCoy's as intellectually equal to be able to handle it. I think Point. they both see each other that way. So here, here's what I mean. Maybe I'm, I'm kind of spoiling some of my mm-hmm. my final thoughts about the film. But it's like, okay, as as both of you have said, you have the McCoy and and Spock are the passion and the logic. And Kirk needs both the logical side and the passionate, human, emotional, and often fallible and – because McCoy will do things that are very irrational sometimes. He needs both of these in order to be the captain. In fact, he says about both of them, I need him. I need you. 
This film is about V'ger joining with the creator. Yeah. This is about V'ger who has reached the end of logic, again, spoiling what, where we're going to go in the film, and needing the human side, the passion side, in order to move forward. Mm-hmm. V'ger and the, and the creator are Spock and McCoy, mm-hmm. and they must come together merge. in order to create Kirk. Yep. Damn. Damn, holy moly. You had to one-up me, didn't you? You had to fucking one-up me, Yours was really oh, good. That, <laughs> that was a good. Great I've never thought of that. That's, that's so basically, it's basically a universal allegory for Spock and McCoy well, and, and, to and, create Kirk. Well, if you think about what did Kirk say throughout the original series is the sort of we need to struggle, we need to fight, we need mm. conflict and all these things. We need to – to drive forward. It was always about driving forward to the next thing. And V'ger is the character who has ceased to be able to drive forward to the next thing, is that he needs this injection of McCoy, essentially, to go there. And and, and in a sense, the, the reaching the end of his of, of, of the road logically for, for V'ger and the, re, the, the, the need to connect mm-hmm. to human, to evolve, is where Spock is. As well, because right. he, like you pointed out, exactly, he he has reached the end and the point logically he can't go any further because right. he's rejected it, and the only place for him to go is to back to his human companionship mm-hmm. to evolve. Well, and 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 this is what Star Trek is saying. Well, this is what I one of the things I love about Star Trek is although it's a very science driven, logical, yeah. idea driven show. It is continually saying, no, you need the human side. Mm-hmm. You need the passion and the emotion and all that's 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 just and well, and we we could go back to the enemy within and we can go back to Kirk's evil side and good side being split and realizing they need them both. And that scene, by the way, in the sick bay, that was episode five of the series when uh, the good Kirk is starting to lose his strength. Uh, of command, and he said, "Help me! Somebody make the decision." And going back to what you said a minute ago, that scene, Kirk has lost his ego. Yeah. In that scene, because and so what we can say based on episode five of the original series is that that ego is housed in the evil side of his personality. Right. And what are we seeing being kind of dominant in the first half of the motion picture right. is that ego side that's driving him, and he has to learn how to kind of pull back. I think the reason Kirk is presented this way is because without Bones, without Spock, Kirk falls into the worst parts of his nature. It is mm, what totally, he is. Yes. So it's not a coincidence that once those two guys show up, Kirk, who's always indifferent, it was a majority of his relationship with Spock is indifference to Spock. Yeah. Remember how he reacted seeing Abraham Lincoln. Remember in the in that in that episode, oh, Sorak. We're in Sorak, right? Yeah, right. When he sees Abraham Lincoln, he has a deference to. Not logic. one of the best episodes. Well, I still love it because uh, I cry sure. every time when he realizes. <sighs> I love that episode so much because when he realizes he had to send Lincoln out to die again, mm. the the heartbreak of that is like incredible. If you have heroes, right? What would it be like for them to come to life to you again and they have to go die? That's a moment that you get. That's how you fall in love with that character. And so in that moment with, I mean, sorry, when they all come onto the ship, then Kirk starts to become who is who he is again. He starts to level out. Yeah. And I think that's why they serve such an essential purpose. Good, good point. Well, the yeah. thing, one thing that we didn't hit 
is that Kirk really wanted a Vulcan to be the science officer. Yeah. It was it was he wanted a Vulcan and he almost got one, but it was going to be a pure Vulcan. Yeah. Commander Sonak was a pure Vulcan when they were doing Star Trek Phase Two, because Nimoy opted out of doing a weekly Star Trek show again, Zahn was supposed to be a pure Vulcan and there was supposed to be this drama, this tension between Kirk and Zahn because Kirk wanted Spock and Zahn is not Spock and Zahn doesn't have a human side that he's suppressing. So it was going to be a very different relationship. But yes, but Kirk needs some some semblance of a Vulcan by his side. Yeah. Yeah. And and a bones. And a bones. And a bones. And I think on that note, we this is we've assembled our team. Everyone is back together. Things are not exactly as we want them to be. The ship isn't quite working the way we want it to work. Spock is not connecting the way we want him to connect. There's tension with Commander Decker and and with Ilea. And we still have hurtling towards Earth the giant, incredibly powerful cloud that possibly could destroy everything we hold dear. And on that moment, I think it's time to end part one of our exploration of Star Trek, the motion picture. Very, very excited. I cannot wait to really get into uh, part two. There's so much. I mean, look, this is how much we love Star Trek, the motion picture. We're yeah. doing two parts on this bad boy. Okay? And, and I hope the people who have tweeted at us or commented on the Facebook group make me fall in love with this film because I didn't really like it the first time I saw it. Maybe we've halfway achieved our goal in making you fall back, fall in love I, with this movie. I gotta say, after 40 well, years we appreciate it, yeah. of of absorbing and dissecting everything Star Trek, but especially you know the motion picture, you have both made such such amazing points that I never considered and blew my mind. Hmm. So for that, I thank you. Well, we've joined with you, Veacher. We've yeah. joined with you. <laughs> we have. The creator must join a feature. But it is interesting that there are three of us sitting here. True, true. And we have been talking about ethos, logos, and pathos true. Our three sides of uh, – I'm not going to say who Captain Kirk is yeah, we should at this all, table. Uh, whoever, you know. <laughs> we can all think we're Kirk. Yeah, we all think no, we're Kirk. No, I'm Spock. <laughs> I'll accept it. Um, all right. And on we'll, that, we'll battle over. Kirk. Yeah, we'll battle. Listen, I think our patreons, our patrons, would really like to see <laughs> the Mance Roca battle to the Kirk yeah. oh, to the fighting right, music from the original. This is it, Mance versus Roca three. Oh five. The winner is Kirk. <laughs> I'm down. Um, as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and YouTube, Stitcher, and a whole bunch of other places. We'd love to get your reviews on iTunes. They help a lot. We love your comments on YouTube. You can uh, purchase or stream Star Trek The Motion Picture on cinephiles.net. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at srmorris, on Instagram at srmorris1. John, where can they reach you? You can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram uh, and see everything I'm doing there. You can catch me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance with a TZ. And once again, it has been so much fun yeah. having you on the show. Thank you, Scott. Guys, thanks. It's always fun, but particularly to, to discuss Star oh, Trek. This, yeah. this is great. Thank you so much. Can't wait for part two, fellas. Well, it's coming next week right here on The Cinephiles. <laughs>